I was studying art, but then I was also studying science. So already there's this like what people view as a contradiction. And at some point I thought, you know, I, uh, the one thing I've wanted to do <laughs> for a long time in my life is be a porn performer. I'd wanted to do that since I was a kid. Some kids wanted to be astronauts or, or president. And uh, for some reason, this had shown up in my life at a very early age. And I've always thought, you know, I wanted to do it. So uh, I left my career. I was teaching uh, at two universities. Um, and I thought, I'm going to be a porn star. I, I recommend this. I moved to San Francisco to be a gay porn star. I recommend this life-destroying move to everybody. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Connor Habib. Connor is the host of the podcast Against Everyone with Connor Habib, featuring Connor's discussions with countercultural figures, from occultists to biologists, war zone journalists to punk musicians, and making space for big talk instead of small talk. Each week, he presents complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. And recently, he had Paul as a guest on his podcast. His debut novel, Hawk Mountain, comes out late 2021. He's a sex workers' rights activist and lives in Dublin, where he's currently pursuing his PhD studying supernatural encounters in Ireland. Hello, everybody. Today, we have a very exciting episode where we dive deep into sex, porn, sex, and porn addiction, what a sex worker is, and much more with Connor Habib. Connor says you don't even understand sex until you've had sex with at least a thousand people. So needless to say, he does have ample experience as a sex worker to know what he's talking about. Connor is a very unusual man with a diverse background, education, and has lived a life of honest confrontation of his own beliefs, fears, and biases. I was first introduced to Connor's work when Penny informed me that he'd reached out to do a podcast with me from Ireland where he lives. She told me he was retired porn star philosopher, which intrigued me deeply. I was truly impressed with the openness and depth of wisdom Connor shared with me and his audience on his podcast, and naturally I invited him to be on Living 4D with me so I could share him with all of you. He not only has a deep knowledge of philosophy, he's a student of Rudolf Steiner's teaching, and his university professor was instrumental in working with James Lovelock to develop the Gaia theory, which is a scientific validation of the Earth as a living organism. Just a warning from the beginning. This podcast gets deep into issues of sex, sexual practices, and other topics that are not ideal for children and can be challenging to people with dogmatic religious views, but can provide a lot of freedom for those living in the closet on many related issues. I hope you enjoy this comprehensive and most interesting exploration of sex and the power that sex has to both send our minds to hell and set us free. Enjoy Connor Habib. Hi, everyone. As you may have heard in the last episode, I've created a survey to help you help me make the podcast more of what you want so you enjoy listening to it each week and sharing it too. Please help me out by going to chekinstitute.com forward slash survey and filling out the survey. Beyond helping me improve the podcast, when you complete the survey, you'll be entered to win a bundle of all kinds of cool gifts from our sponsors. The survey began with the release of last week's podcast and will run until the 10th of January. 
On the 10th, I'll draw one name at random from the survey participants to win the sponsor bundle. So please take a moment to make your voice heard. The sponsor bundle is pretty cool too, so don't miss out on that either. My dream is to make the podcast something exciting and special for you each week, so I look forward to hearing from each and every one of you, and thank you in advance for your participation. And finally, thank you for your willingness to learn, grow, and love more with me each day. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I have a very special guest for you today, someone I've been waiting to do a podcast with for a while now, and good fortune brings him all the way from Ireland to LA to visit his partner, and he drove down to spend some time with a day with me, thank God, so we can hang out. Connor Habib. Connor, welcome. Hey, Paul. <laughs> Connor is someone I did a podcast with a while back, not too long ago. And Penny had said to me, Paul, there's this guy who's a retired porn star that does a podcast that's really quite good, and he's really quite deep. You should check him out. I said, really? A retired porn star? And I thought, that's interesting. It's already got my interest. So I went and looked at his website, and I was absolutely blown away, Connor. You got a, you got a very diverse background. <laughs> so just some things I wanted to share about Connor is a deep and uh, diverse understanding of life, philosophy, and he's a, a very sincere student of Rudolf Steiner's teachings. And in my podcast, with Connor, we got deep into some Steiner concepts. And um, he's an author. He writes for online magazines. He's written a novel titled Hawk Mountain. And Connor, is that out yet? That that comes out, well, it was supposed to come out next fall, but it's being pushed because of all publication schedules for major publishers. So Right. Yeah. And can you just give us a 10-second overview of what Hawk Mountain's about? <laughs> yeah, it's a very tense, um, sort of blood-spattered story about to men and like uh, what happens when you can't admit that you love people. Oh, <laughs> you, you mean like a lot of men. <laughs> Connor de describes himself as a well-known counter-cultural counter activist. And I wanted you to clarify, what is a counter- <laughs> cultural <laughs> activist. It sounds kind of like acid. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I actually, I don't know if I should use that um, term anymore because I'm not really counterculture. Um, it just was the only way I could find to sort of describe what I was doing, which mm -hmm. was uh, actually better put by my friend Duncan Trussell, who on his latest podcast that I did with him said that I was a living psychedelic substance. So I think that that's probably a better, but it's just mouthier to say it that way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you mean you're opening people up. Is that what <clears throat> what I would exactly yeah um and you're a sex worker we're going to get into that part of Connor later in the show but I'm super excited to have you here at the Rainbow House. How do you like my hangout, Connor? Yeah, I love it. It's awesome. I didn't exactly know what to expect, but then when I got here, I was like, yeah, this is it. You know, I, got, I, I was like, yeah, this is what I actually would have envisioned if I <laughs> thought about it more. Yeah. yeah, cool. Well, this is our dream house. Took us five years to find this beauty, and she's doing a great job of draining our wallets, but we still love her. <laughs> Connor, your background is wildly diverse. As I shared in the introduction, you're everything but most what people would expect <laughs> concealed in the body mind of a retired porn star. <laughs> so to set the stage and give us all a sense of the formative forces that created you, I'd love it if you can share a biographical overview of your life and the forces and events that brought you to where you are now as a successful podcaster, author, sex worker, and psychedelic for society, <laughs> as well as a student of Steiner's teachings and all the rest of the things you're up to. Yeah. So how far back should we go? Let me, let me, let me, uh, well, tell us why the universe created you. <laughs> yeah. that for far enough back? Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk, talk to us what, what, what God needed when he said, let there be light on Connor's soul. Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of things are called on, 
um, from a lot of us to do in our lives. And uh, one of the hardest things to do is to follow them honestly. And I know that that has changed in various times in my life. But uh, what I've tried to do is follow each one of the things that I wanted to do, which in itself is rare, I think. Um, so I... I was this this is sort of the origin story of my life as a public figure. I was uh in grad school for uh creative writing and also organismic and evolutionary biology at the University of Massachusetts where I was studying with Lynn Margulies who developed the Gaia theory with James Lovelock. Oh, it's beautiful. Married, married to Carl Sagan, you know that Carl Sagan book over there. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so I was studying art, but then I was also studying science. So already there's this like what people view as a contradiction. And at some point I thought, you know, I, uh, the one thing I've wanted to do <laughs> for a long time in my life is be a porn performer. I'd wanted to do that since I was a kid. Some kids wanted to be astronauts or, or president. And uh, for some reason, this had shown up in my life at a very early age. And I've always thought, you know, I wanted to do it. So uh, I left my career. I was teaching uh, at two universities, um, and I thought, I'm going to be a porn star. I, I recommend this. I moved to San Francisco to be a gay porn star. I recommend this life-destroying move to everybody. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was great. Not being a porn star, but just throw a wrench in the gears, because, you know, at some point, I was, like, you know, on track to be a professor of, was what? Like, of English, okay. you know? So it was like, okay, grad school, uh, professorship, tenure, die. You know what I mean? It's like that track that people follow, mm -hmm. and I thought, if I throw a wrench in the gears now of this, I'm actually going to have to be really sort of awesome to crawl out of that for anybody to take me seriously or me to take myself seriously, which I'm still working on the awesome part. But the, but the idea was, you know, I have this other thing that I want to follow and I never followed it. Mm -hmm. So I followed it. And um, it took me really deep into kind of realm of sex and all, and all that. But before, just before I started that journey, I'd also encountered the work of Rudolf Steiner rather by, not by accident, because it's not an accident, but I was studying with Lynn and she took me to a conference called the Bioneers Conference. So this was an environmental systems thinking conference that would happen on the East and West Coast every year. Kind and of I, along the lines of Jeffrey Bateson or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gre Gregory Bateson. Yeah, Gregory, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, there was definitely a lot of that. There were a lot of these big thinkers like him at these conferences. But there was this one little unassuming table for this place called the Nature Institute, which is in New York State. And they were just going to do an eight or a three-month program on Gertian science. And and I had no idea what that meant. And Lynn was like, oh, if you can get into that, you, you, you're going to it. And I was like, well, Lynn, I'm in school for two things and teaching already. And that's in New York. She's like, yeah, but you do that. <laughs> okay. You just do not fuck with Lynn if she told you to do something. So applied, got in. So every day driving back and forth from New York to Massachusetts to do these two things, living in two places for three months studying Gertine science, didn't realize Goethe had anything to do with Rudolf Steiner, whose name had sort of come up before. Mm. Suddenly living next door to a biodynamic farm across the street from a Waldorf school, and I'm just soaking it all in. It's changing my the structure, actual structure of my thinking to do this Gertine science. And then I start reading Steiner, and it all starts unfolding from there. So then as I'm doing porn in San Francisco, um, I'm also running a spirituality and science discussion group at my apartment for two years, um, doing meditative exercises, moderating, having different people come in and talk, all that kind of stuff. And so that's all unfolding. And then, uh, yeah, at a certain point, I I'm giving you really the cliff's notes of everything, but then at a certain point, I decide, you know, I like doing porn. Um, it's very valuable to me, and I'm sure we'll get deeper into all of that as the show goes on. But, um, you know, the writing I want to do and the spiritual science I want to do and spiritual exploration, it doesn't allow um, the space for some of this. Mm -hmm. um, it, it wasn't, there was no moral conflict. It just, there wasn't a, 
and in fact, anything I'd learned about the morality and the ethics and, mm-hmm. and the sort of unfolding of sex work and all that kind of stuff in, in the spiritual world. But what I needed to do was concentrate on these other. And so then I kind of left all that behind. I started <laughs> writing, doing activism for sex workers because I saw all the predicaments and laws and regulations that were affecting sex workers' lives. And then the spiritual commitment kept deepening and deepening and this clanging bell uh, that had been there since I was 15 years old, but just a tiny little ring and then just getting louder and louder and louder to move to Ireland to do uh, more of the work I'm called to do there. But where are you from then? I thought you were from Ireland. No, I'm not from Ireland. Mm. I grew up, uh, I'm half Irish and half Syrian, ethnically Irish. My father's from Syria, but I grew up in Pennsylvania. So yeah, and then then lived in Massachusetts, lived in California, and then moved to Ireland. But I went to Ireland when I was 15 years old with my family, and it had such a profound effect on me that I thought about it every week, you know? Um, Was it the culture or the energy or? Yeah, I mean, what one would probably... Like, I would be tempted to say, oh, it's the literature, the way people talk to each other, the landscape, all that kind of stuff. But actually now, in retrospect, I can see that there was actually just a spiritual dimension to it that was requiring me to be there. So it was sort of setting me up and marinating me over time for me to be the right person to be in that spot to do mm-hmm. what needs to be done. I love Celtic spirituality. Yeah, yeah. I'm really learning about it now. And when you learn about it in that landscape, it becomes something completely different. And and really, yeah, really profound, really wild in a way that you <laughs> you don't know, like when you're not there, and then you're there, and you're like, God, it 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 has a different relationship to cause and effect. It's very profoundly unmoored, untethered from the way. I thought things worked before. The landscape is strange. It's mm. living in a different kind of way. The place beings there. I mean, it's. I studied the uh, collected works of John O'Donohue, which gave me a real good experience of Celtic spirituality. I thought it was beautiful. He's such a beautiful writer. He's one of those people, him and this other guy, John Moriarty. You would love John Moriarty, I think. Um, They both died around the same time, and there were these two just big Irish mystics. And Mm -hmm. I always tell people I'm glad they died before I met them because the loss of the loss of them after knowing them would have been unbearable. So at mm. least <laughs> they moved into the spirit world in that way before I encountered them. And I can really feel their work. It's so profound. Yeah. I I, I bought, uh, I don't know how many CDs it is. I think it's like 12 or 13 CDs of all of John O'Donohue's books. And he's actually the one reading them. So I really got that sense of being with him. Yes. So I drove around for a few months listening to John O'Donohue. But I felt... I felt um, the depth of his wisdom and the depth of his love, and um, it was neat to hear about so many things that I've studied in my life from a Celtic perspective, you know, and and the deep connection to the land was quite strong in his teachings, you know, and just all sorts of neat stuff. But anyhow, I just, that's my Irish connection to Celtic spirituality. You know, uh, you kind of already mentioned something here, but I thought I would throw it in. You know, most people that were porn stars or anything like that that also have a bent for spirituality would probably have quite a dance in their head with their superego going off telling them all the ways they were sinning and (laughs) that kind of shit how do you what's your inner story about how you deal with maybe what's more of a public stigma um and a religious stigma about all that stuff and keep because you see, for most people, being a porn star and being spiritual would be, would be like oil and water. But 
I can tell from talking to you and, and being in your presence and reading some of the things you've written and also podcasting with you that it doesn't seem to have caused any separation within you. And um, so I'm curious as to what's your inner process like when you're marrying those two together? It sounds to me, what, what I would assume is that you have made the transition from sex into something base into sex as something deeply spiritual? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I have had struggles with it, but there are struggles that I chose to mediate, you know. I mean, a big part of what I was doing with that sort of chapter of my life was trying to make available for as many people as possible a pathway through the struggle. Because if I could do it, then it could make it it could make some of those things easier for others. I think that's so, great. Yeah. So, so, but it is, it is dark and, um, you know, it, it took a lot to dark meaning unilluminated, not dark as in bad, but it is a dark passage because of all the social forces, especially. And then I think there are some actual obstructive spiritual forces when it comes to sexuality. But for me, <laughs> there's, there was an idea that Okay, one, if I could sort of weave these contra seemingly contradictory forces together, art, science, spirituality, sex, then I would be an outsider to each group and therefore a bridge mm -hmm. to everybody that needs to traverse those uh, islands, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I could be a bridge for, you know, New York hipsters to talk about spirituality, you know, whether they're being really atheistic because they would trust that I had betrayed it by doing porn in mm -hmm. some way, you see? Mm -hmm. So there was that um, aspect to it. I think also um, when I think about sex and what I would say is sex is, you know, sex is a mystery school. It's a mystery school. And like every school or every mystery, a real mystery, you can always learn more from it than you can about it. Mm -hmm. So if you just follow it yeah. rather than trying to dominate it, which is what most people have been told they have to do with their sexual desires or sexual lives, if you can follow it and survive, <laughs> which is not always possible. You mean follow your own natural impulse without editing it? Yeah. I mean, follow the mystery of sex. Like, like, so yes, if there are desires, drives, um, fears, repulsions, all that kind of stuff. If you can understand that that's always going to be a step ahead of you, because mm -hmm. you can't ever get ahead of your desire. Almost uh, some people can, but it's very difficult to get ahead of your desire. Mm -hmm. So if you follow it, and you can follow that in various ways. You can carry out the sexual acts. Mm -hmm. You can just read about them if you want. You can masturbate thinking about different versions of them. You can try them out with partners. You can do elaborate stagings of them on a porn set where you are a construction worker meeting another construction worker. and You have this whole role play set up by mm -hmm. the studio or whatever it is. Then... Um, you're following the the impulse, but also I mean also following the phenomenological the phenomenological actual encounter with sex. What is happening when I have sex and I'm having feelings rush through my body and thoughts in my mind, and sometimes those seem very disparate. What is happening when, for instance, masturbation's a great one. If if a man biological uh, born identified man is masturbating with his penis and is watching porn. Isn't it bizarre that you can watch symbolic images or, or, or imagine them, imagine pornographic images and combine the symbolic or the imaginative with one repetitive motion. And then after five to 10 minutes, however, give or take half the substance of life er erupts from your body. Mm. That's a powerful, formative, creative, potent force. And that's an act of magic you know, as well. And so if you just look into those experiences and take them seriously, instead of just, well, I'm just going to crank another one out today, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, suddenly you realize one, how bizarre they are, um, and that you are in a mystery school every single time 
you encounter something like that. That is really intense. The fact that you can have uh, attractions to people, sexual attractions to people. Why should it be that I've had straight men tell me that they were attracted to me even though they were never attracted to anybody else? Or certain certain people that you'd be attracted to on a feeling level, but not a physical level, all that kind of stuff. Again, I'm just sort of painting, if you pay attention to those things and take them seriously, then you realize that you're in the mystery and that you become a student of it rather than just trying to control it. So that's what I mean by following. I don't necessarily mean doing every impulse you have. Getting sick is no fun. A scratchy throat or congested sinus take their toll on our energy and our happiness. Finally, there's a natural organic solution. If you're tired of remembering different pills and gulping gross syrups, you'll love this refreshing orange juice. Organifi Immunity is a simple immune-boosting superfood blend which can help fight the symptoms and decrease the durations of colds and flus. This new formula combines many helpful ingredients you already know, like zinc, vitamin C, and vitamin D3, with revolutionary new discoveries like ultrasonic-extracted mushroom beta-glycans. It's traditional wisdom and modern science combined. Not just for the flu season, but a great general immune boost you can enjoy now and stop falling for colds, flus, and many other infections. Organifi Immunity tastes great hot or cold, is quick and easy to use. Just pour your package into water, mix, and enjoy. If you enjoy capsules or just want to add extra immune support nutrition to your daily regimen, try Organifi Critical Immune. These caps are easy and effective to use. I love using Organifi products because that way I know for sure I'm taking good care of myself and supporting organic farmers and soil regeneration too. Go to www.organifi.com, that's Organifi.com, and on checkout use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K20, that's CHECK20, to get your 20% discount on any purchase. And for Living 4D listeners, that 20% discount is across the board. So shop around at Organifi and enjoy more health and vitality. You know, I've had quite a comprehensive <laughs> sexual life. And uh, um, I've been down many rabbit holes where, you know, part of me was saying, why are you doing this? And the other part of me was saying, but if you don't do this, you're not being honest with yourself. And you're here to live. And then I would say, where's that voice coming from in my head that's, you know, questioning, guilting, shaming, whatever. And when I track it back, it goes right to religious programming from my childhood. And so my reaction to that is that was the most painful, confusing period of my life. And I've seen how much pain and confusion it causes for countless people. And so I felt in my own journey that it was my job very much like you say, almost to to use the word pioneering. I felt, Mm -hmm. at least for myself, I had to go into these inner dimensions of myself because as a teacher, it's important for me to be authentic and not talk about things with some air of expertise that I don't have authentic experience of and haven't put some time and energy into um, developing. You know, it's kind of like if you read a book by someone on how to meditate or astral travel, but they've never done it. <laughs> someone who's really skilled at it go, this guy just cutting, cutting and pasting from other books. He doesn't really know what they're talking about. I mean, he or she. But um, I felt that the more turmoil there was in me, the more 
healing I could do not only for myself, but for my family. And the more empathy and compassion I can have for people that don't know how to deal with that turmoil. Because one of the things I find with sex is that it's one of the great spiritual practices that gets the most um, internal negative guilt, shame, Mm -hmm. and uh, sort of internal resistance that actually stops a person from really getting to know themselves and even their partner or partners because of all the inhibitions that are there. So, for me, it's been tremendous, and I've been fortunate to have some some lovers in my life that were actually much more capable of being open and getting past any of those types of blockages that were able to open me up more. And so, it's amazing, too, when you have intimacy with somebody that is open for the depths of love, you know, uninhibited depths of love. I was never having sex with people just to have sex. I was always having sex with people that I had an intimate connection with. So it's different than what I call sports sex. But it's, it's uh, you know, I remember the f- first time I had sex with two women at once. My head was going crazy. The man in me was going, hallelujah. I've been waiting for this my whole life. But the other part of me was like, you know, if my mom was watching this, I'd, I'd never, ever, ever be able to <laughs> stop hearing about it. And... um and I can remember the first time one of my girlfriends pulled out a power tool and wanted to stuff it up my ass. That got my <laughs> my uh, nervous system a little wound up, and 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 you know, and, and <laughs> unfortunately or fortunately, whatever way you want to take it, I, I seem to have attracted a series of girls that like to play with everything, and and so I, it sort of stretched me a lot. You know, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I, I can't cop out on this, or you know, I'm not going to grow. So there's so many things in what you said. There's so many places to go. So one of the things I say is it's really interesting how many spiritual, so-called spiritual people love to make pronouncements about sex. And it could be down to, it could be someone who's completely like what we consider enlightened Mm -hmm. talking about sex. And I'm always like, look, if you haven't had sex with at least a thousand people, I'm not interested in what you have to say. (laughs) Now, of course, I'm being hyperbolic there, but I do think it's like, there's so many people that have no experience with sex. They might be able to talk about their sexuality, which is different, but sex itself, the mystery is, is a whole different field. And I just don't trust when people don't have a lot of experience in that to be able to talk about it. That's exactly why I did what I was doing. Because as a teacher of life and a therapist and a life coach, I've seen everything. I've had multiple (laughs) clients that Uh came to me with tremendous guilt and shame over having sex with animals, at least three of them, and 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 worse, you know, other other crazy shit. And even people that have killed people. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so in order for me to really do what I came to this planet to do, I've always trusted my inner guidance system so that I ended up where I was supposed to be to experience. And and I've found with plant medicine ceremonies and sexual practices, usually the greater the fear and the greater the sense of guilt and shame or the greater any kind of negative inner experience you're having, the more potent the healing opportunity is and the more wisdom there is hiding behind the 
mm-hmm. force field of that negativity. Yeah. So, so, so just to go back before, I just want to say one more thing about, which is like, it, so if you're, if you're at a, if you're at some spiritual like <laughs> conference or something and someone's on stage talking about sex, raise your hand and just ask the presenter how many people they've had sex with. Because if they can't deal with that question, first right. you learn something about them, but also their answer should be enlightening. But, but as to your point about the people that you are getting these messages from, the things that people are saying to you, you know, as someone who has been in the field of, you know, like associated with sex, I mean, that's, that will always be part of who I am now. So over almost 15 years or whatever, the picture I get of sex in the world is very, very different than I think the, pe- the picture that people have of sex because of all the emails and messages that people have sent me, some of which are exuberant and joyful, some are which are just totally, to me, weird. I mean, I wouldn't say they're weird to the person, but just like, whoa, okay, you know, some which are extremely dark, painful, all that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, there's no normal version of sex. There are two things to say about that. One is that there, you know, because our culture has a certain picture of what sex is, which is, I think, rather a boring picture. Judeo-Christian. Yes, it was a completely missionary wrong, position. Wrong only on picture. Certain days that is procreative, when in fact most sex acts are not procreative, like mm. so on and so forth, and that the sex sex is actually only confined to an act. When it in in fact is pulsing and everything around us everywhere all the time, and look how bad but, it's fucked people's heads up. To- totally, that narrowing blinkered picture, you know, that's not correct. And when you actually work with sex publicly, you start getting a lot of different ideas of how it plays out. And so, I just want people to hear that because I think that in itself might be healing. Like there is no normal when it comes to sex. the The second thing is the the reason why that's so is the thing I say is if you ever want to learn how somebody feels about freedom, start talking about sex. Because sex is, in my opinion, as long as we're embodied in physical bodies in this kind of incarnation, it's actually the most individual thing about us. It's not, it's not that that makes it somehow better than everything else or worse than everything else, but it's all drawn down into the human experience. Mm-hmm. It's the formative force for human life. It's conducive to hum- human existence, completely inextricable from it. Mm-hmm. But it's also a person interacting with another person and bringing all the forces of karma that they have with them as, lo- as well as all their forces of freedom to interact with each other. It's and all more. here. Yes. It's bringing their shadow. Totally. It's bringing their unconscious contents with shadow, which is part of, but within the shadow, most people don't think of, well, within the unconscious is all our latent positive potentials, right? And I can tell you, for example, as a writer, uh, an inventor, someone who does a lot of original work, sex has been one of the most powerful muse functions to open my mind up, you know, like it's as good as, you know, a lot of people are microdosing with LSD and stuff like that, but, (laughs) um, and I've tested all sorts of microdose scenarios over the years, but if you, I find for me that I get the depth of connection and the opening of my mind and heart that is every bit as good as a properly done psychedelic experience through sex, especially if it's somebody that loves and supports you. Because my experience is when you come out of sex with somebody that really loves and supports you, it's as though they've filled you with their life force too. So it's almost like if you were a sailboat, your sails are full of wind and you feel like you can do anything. That's how it works on me at least. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> again, like a few things here, I feel like everything you say, I'm going to have like 10 things to say, cause there's always so much um, packed in. But one is I'm glad you brought up the, the drug thing. Cause we'll, we'll talk about that as we go on, I think, but people should realize that the 
you know, when, when they frame the war on drugs as a war against consciousness, the oldest war on consciousness is the war against sex. Yes, I mean, that's the true. The ways that it's been regulated, mm-hmm. mediated, used for power plays all throughout history by not just religions, sciences, governments, all that kind of stuff. So Medicine. Because it's an altered state of consciousness, it gives access to a kind of self-realization through encounter with the individuality that I was talking about before. So I think that that's, that's one thing. The other thing I would say is... The you know, having sex with someone that you that you love and is supportive of you, it, I would just say, you know, that's one kind. And then the, the sports sex that you're talking about or whatever, that's another kind. The trick, I think, for me is not to find the right partner necessarily, although that can be amazing, but rather to develop a certain engagement with sex itself so that um, you begin to realize what these positions, <laughs> nope. Pun, there's everything can be a pun in an episode about sex but what these mm-hmm. positions are uh like oh i have sex to comfort myself i have sex for affection i have sex because i want to get a job i have sex because i need money i have sex because uh i love this person i have sex because blah blah those are all available to us mm-hmm. but they all do different things and they yeah. all intersect with us in mm-hmm. different ways mm-hmm. and so we shouldn't say that any of them are bad or whatever but we should recognize the difference in them mm-hmm. and be able to uh meet whoever we meet in that so two more things one is that Leo Bersani, who is somebody I don't really love, but he's a a theorist, a queer theorist, and he says something like, uh, the big secret about sex is that most people don't like it, right? And it's bullshit. (laughs) Well, the tensions of of culture actually bring experiences of sex to people that they go in and they experience the pleasure, Mm -hmm. but then they're they're like plagued with guilt and they're plagued with anxiety while they're having it, right? that's not the sex. No, exactly. That's the psyche, the mind, really. I, I absolutely agree with you. That's the part where you're worried about your mother seeing the two yes. women in the room with you. Yeah. But but it's hard for people to pull that apart because it, they don't know. That's the growth opportunity. There's Exa- the door right there. Exactly. Exactly. So how can I get to actually love what I'm about to do, no matter what kind of situation this is here, whether mm-hmm. it's, again, because I'm seeing a client who needs sex or because I'm having sex with somebody I love or because I'm having sex with a stranger because I'm bored or whatever. Mm-hmm. How do I find the way in, <laughs> in a loving way to that? So I think that's something I want to bring up. I forget what the other thing is, but I'm sure it'll come up again. <laughs> so we well, can there's something I want to throw at you here, and that is, you know, one of the things about sex is because it's so powerful, it has the ability to be as addictive as is the most dangerous drugs on the planet. And so where I've seen sex to be the most challenging for people is that they lose their free will because, for example, they're addicted to porn or they're addicted to having sex with somebody that they're maybe married to, but they don't love that person. They don't even want to be with them, but they're too insecure to leave because the sex is gluing them together. I did an audio program that's on my PPS program. I think it's called Sex is Glue or Sex is Grease. What kind of sex are you having? And sex is glue is a symbol for the sex that's bonding, uh, binding you to somebody that you're not um, engaging in a healthy growth type relationship with you're just stuck together Mm. and so basically you alternate between sex and fighting and that kind of becomes a life so i i think my experience coaching countless thousands of people is sex becomes a problem when it becomes the dominating force that makes choices for you Mm -hmm. instead of you selecting i'm consciously choosing to have sex with this cab driver or my <laughs> boss, or things that in in normal cultural parlance would be considered to be very taboo. But if you're making that choice consciously with 
a hundred percent willingness to accept the ramifications and even the blowback that might come, mm-hmm. then I consider you to be a pioneer because now you're you're going out of the consensus norm and you're doing something that very few people do, which means you're gaining experience that makes you um, more wise than others, and therefore you can become useful for that. Yeah. So. First of all, the cab drivers are always the best at sex. So have sex with a cab driver. <laughs> I didn't um, know no, that. no. <laughs> but uh, no, I. So I just want to say the yes. So I would. <laughs> I don't know how deep we want to get into this, but there's been a lot of great work on whether or not the word addiction is right for when it comes to sex or porn, uh, especially Dr. David Lay, Dr. Chris Donahue, and Dr. Nicole Prouse have all done like a lot of work on looking at models of addiction. What they all say is thing, something like compulsion is absolutely there. But because sex is actually part of our the imaginative framework of our thinking, because it is what creates human beings, all that kind of stuff, do we have addiction in the same way? Or are we observing something that has a lot of overlap with addiction, but can't be um, worked in the exact same way, which is why, I mean, not that I trust the DSM, but, but just why sex addiction and porn addiction have not been admitted to the DSM for, you know, for, for, the, for the most part. But I agree with you that, and again, I don't know how far we want to go down there, but I agree with you that- We want to go wherever a dialogue takes okay, us. Okay, okay, great. we're here great, to do. Great, great. So I, I agree that there's tons of sexual compulsion, for yeah. sure. What I would say, though, is that the way that sex addiction is talked about in culture, usually, not you, but in sort of mainstream d- discourse about it, usually actually makes things worse. And drives people into it. And the reason why is because we're so sexually fucked up that we wouldn't even know what sexual health is at this point. That's true. Right. And, and also the diagnosis is is a damage damaging it's a hex. factor. It's a hex, yeah. But before we get too far, I want to clarify something. Part of the challenge you're talking about with these experts saying they don't think sex is an addiction has a lot to do with the definition of what an addiction is. Yes. I have my own definition because I've worked with countless addicts of all types. I define an addiction as any repeated behavior that does not produce the results you want. So when repeated be- sex as a repeated behavior is creating separation in an intimate relationship or is creating fear or dysfunction or distrust or um, such a degree of guilt and shame that it's eroding a person's um, self-esteem and and inner integrity, then I would say that's an addiction. Yeah. So I love that framing because that also means that the way that you would deal with the addiction is different than just saying, don't do it anymore, right? Right. Which is like the standard addiction model and quote unquote sex addiction and porn addiction that people talk about. Mm -hmm. You would say, actually, what's underneath here? Why are you feeling bad about these experiences? How do we get to the root of that? It doesn't necessarily mean you don't have these experiences anymore, but rather that you transform and redeem them through... um, uh, refinement of your entire being, which is completely different than don't have sex, don't watch porn, don't whatever, right? right? Because like one of the things I find, for example, is that porn addiction, I, f- I forget the study, but this was a great one, that porn addiction numbers are way higher in states where there's more of a, a religious <laughs> Christian majority yes. because people identify with porn addiction after watching. And so one of the things I like to say is like, <laughs> so many people have come to me and they're like, am I addicted to porn? You know, I love porn so much. And I'm like, well, tell me about that. And they're like, I masturbate like two hours a day to porn. And I'm like, okay, well, how 
many hours a day do you work, you know, at the bank or the store or whatever? Well, like eight hours. And I'm like, oh, it really sounds like your work addiction is getting in the way of you being able to pleasure yourself to porn, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe you're in the wrong job. Right, right, exactly. So like, what are, you where do make we- make a lot of money if you film that. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You might be really rich. <laughs> but so, why, so why, like the place where we place the emphasis of value and culture already pollutes the field for what we accept sexually. It's like, oh, you're not supposed to jerk off for two hours? That's you engaging with your imagination, your body, and pleasure for two hours of the day. I mean, that's beautiful. You know what sucks? Working at fucking Tesco or 7-Eleven or whatever when you hate it for eight hours a day for someone else's project to pollute and destroy the planet. What you're doing with your body isn't hurting anybody. In fact, it's enriching your life. So there's the whole cultural apparatus that brings people into shame and sense of addiction. Mm -hmm. And so that's why your model is actually very different than the one that's the mainstream model. You know, turmeric's really, really hot now. There's a lot of scientific research on it, but they're not all created the same. So I brought Autumn Smith on to tell you about Paleo Valley's turmeric complex so you know exactly what the benefits are and why you, like me, should get your turmeric complex from Paleo Valley. Autumn, tell us about your turmeric complex. At Paleo Valley, we are big believers in food as medicine. And so turmeric, of course, it has beat drugs out. We know it's anti-inflammatory. We know it has brain benefits. We know it has joint benefits. But what most people don't know is that a lot of turmeric supplements only contain one isolated compound of turmeric called curcumin. And so what we did instead was create a complex. We added organic turmeric and then ginger and rosemary and clove, which were some of the most DNA protective spices studied. And we created a complex. We added organic coconut powder and pepper for absorption. And so we We've created a really high quality, highly bioavailable turmeric complex that will hopefully help you to feel your best. And all you have to do to check it out is go to paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15, that's lowercase C-H-E-K-15 to save 15%. How I handle it with people with be it sex or other addictions, is I always describe addictions as unmet needs. They're either pointing to or fulfilling an unmet need. And the most common thing I find with all addicts is that they're looking for safe love. Mm -hmm. You know, most people have had traumatic upbringings and, and a lot of people have been sexually traumatized emotionally, physically. Um, the statistics on violence in families, particularly religious families and particularly Catholic families from my research, is pretty damn shocking. So, you know, most people have developed a fear of intimacy because the most the initial intimate experience we have is that of being born and then that of being naked and helpless with our parents. And if being born naked and helpless with our parents has produced trauma, then psychologically we've become afraid of two of the most common things we're ever going to encounter, women and men. Mm -hmm. Because those mom and dad are our archetypal imprints as to what we can expect from all other males and females. So if a person comes into the world through their childhood and they have pain with intimacy, pain with love, then I find that a lot of these people have to find things like heroin or alcohol or anything that allows them space to feel a, sh a state, sh excuse me, a state shift 
and a sense of joy or just the the bliss of oblivion, you know, mm. like someone doing mm-hmm. heroin's not sitting there using the advantage of open mind to create new business strategies like you would do with LSD or maybe mushrooms, but they're really having a great sense of of the relief of the pain that is living in their psyche and in their body quite often from mm-hmm. the trauma. So I think if people realize that addictions were attempts to fulfill unmet needs and to find safe love. I tell people, have you ever had a beer bottle chew you out because you didn't kiss it nicely? Mm-hmm. Or, or a cigarette complain about the way you put your mouth around it? No. you know. So it's it's a chance for people to reach deep levels of intimacy without fear of, of some kind of backlash, retribution, or pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's all true for, for sure. There's ways in which the ability to express, receive, radiate, and just be love are are blocked and there's no judgment call on that at all. That's actually just the shape of the challenge of your karma in a lot of cases. And also, you know, if it, it it's you know, with the etheric body. <laughs> um, so I don't know if I need to explain all of that to I would, uh, just for the listeners, I mean, I know what you're talking about. Uh, I would say give a definition of the etheric yeah. body and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Know. So actually, this will probably come up a, a little later. So I'll just go through all of them very quickly. So um, according to uh, occultism, but particularly I'm using the anthroposophical model developed by Rudolf Steiner, we have four bodies, meaning you could sort of imagine looking at someone and just sort of discreetly separate into systems if you want. Like layers systems of are all, an onion. Exactly. They're all intermingled. But so we have the physical body or the mineral body, which is just the stuff, right? And if you look at a rock, that's pure mineral body. That's a, that it lives in the mineral world. We share that in common with stones. If you, you have, we have an etheric body, which is the growing, unfolding rhythms and life of our being, our heartbeat, our blood flowing, our lungs, all that. We can see that also in the plant kingdom. A plant has a mineral body like a rock, and it also has an etheric body because it's growing. There's a life force there. There's breathing, there's rhythm, there's patterning that unfolds like a certain sort of logic. We have an astral body. Our astral body is where our emotions uh, just sort of churn like a sun. That's why it's astral. It's this uh, star that's within us that gives us warmth, inner warmth, the feeling of inner warmth. It breaks down our emotional processes. It moves in us like weather. If we look at an animal, an animal has an astral body, Mm -hmm. which it shares with the plant, uh, the etheric body, and it shares with the rock, uh, the mineral or the physical body. And the animal is just emotion. It just moves around with its emotive self. Its actions actually are emotive, expressive acts. It is an astral being. If you have a uh, if you have a human being, then finally, the one thing that we have that nobody, none of those other beings have, is the ego or the I body. Um, so the I. <laughs> So the human has the I, which is the ability to think about uh, the emotions and the etheric and the physical, if you want. But it can sort of look at all those things, but there's an flowing, uh, there's a flowing aspect of ourselves that turns into thoughts and all its eddies and movements. So I, body, astral body, etheric body, physical body. So now you have a whole uh, breakdown of the four occult bodies. <laughs> And so in there, the mental body, you're equating into the context of the eye body. Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah. So all that was just to tee up that addiction is... It can be very, it can be related to various disruptions of the etheric body. Because if you see that we have this patterning in ourselves that is a growing, flowing life process that exhibits itself in patterns like the heartbeat, 
like the lungs, all that kind of stuff. Then you can see drinking, doing heroin, these repetitive acts are an attempt to establish an external form of etheric body, mm -hmm. which means that we have a weakness in our etheric body for some reason or another. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, externalizing the thing onto a substance or whatever else it might be ends up further weakening the etheric body, which drives us deeper into dependence of it. Mm -hmm. And these weaknesses in the etheric can happen from all different forces, which is why people reach for different substances or different activities, um, depending on what which uh, uh, pollution or sickness in some, one of the other bodies or overemphasis of one of the other bodies uh, has. So I hope that was clear for everybody. But if not, just whatever, listen to it uh, again or go read one of the <laughs> yeah, 6,000 Rudolf Schneider I'll books. I'll just add a little bit. Um, <laughs> the etheric body is also very influenced and maintained by the biochemical interactions of any living organism. So when you have a world full of people that are eating terrible food, don't know how to eat right for their metabolic needs, don't drink enough water, fill their bodies full of drug, medical drugs and uh, chemicals from food additives, preservatives, to colorings, emulsifiers, flavors, chemical residues from commercial farming, uh, smoking marijuana raised with rapid grow chemicals and under grow lights. These things all basically have very negative effects on the harmony that is naturally inherent amongst, you know, approximately 100 trillion cells, depending on whose mm. book you read. But there's a natural, the subconscious mind or the wisdom of the cells and the DNA knows how to heal itself and how to bring harmony. It's the conscious mind that disrupts that harmony with its choices. For example, mm. we have to sleep at night to give our body a break from the mind or it can't repair itself. It's constantly a slave to the eye, which contains the mental body. And it's mostly the lower mental body, the programmed mind that leads to these problems. So if the individual isn't aware that they're not breathing effectively, they're not moving enough, they're not getting enough sleep, they're not eating effectively, um, they're thinking self-destructive thoughts or their, their mind is too based on what they don't want relative to celebrating what they do have, those things all create distortions in the etheric body. Mm. And then the person develops cravings, often unconsciously, Often because people are so confused, the craving for water becomes, oh, I need coffee or beer or right. tea. And the craving for real food becomes, I'm too busy to eat, so I'm going to eat a bag of Cheez-Its or chips or some packaged crap. And so that perpetual imbalance in the etheric body can, can manifest everywhere because the etheric body is linked into the psyche. So what you do to the etheric body, you're having a, a reflex effect through all the bodies. You, you, you can't, it's like a spider's web. There's nowhere you can touch it without affecting the whole thing. And I think a lot of people's uh, reactions, be it sex, drugs, or otherwise, are unconscious attempts to balance oneself that are interrupted by their programmed lower mind, which if they had more of a spiritual practice and depth of connection to their soul, they would be able to distinguish the lower forms of correction that are leading to dysfunction relative to higher guidance. Yeah, I really, I really like that you basically you just brought the rest of the world in, which is really good because all sorts of things can interfere with and interact with our our bodies that are karmic or just out in the rest of the world. I mean, there are forces that can interfere with our etheric body and that are not in us or not in our life. Such as electromagnetic pollution. <laughs> exactly. 5G, you want to fuck yourself up, just hang out in a 5G zone for a while. Well, and also there are spiritual forces, you know, that totally. are always at work trying to interfere with for their own 
reasons, if you can call them that, with with what we do. It's interesting because the, in fact, the physical body, even though we think of that as like the one that you really have to maintain the most, it's actually the one that <laughs> does the best job of maintaining itself if you just let it. Exactly. Like <laughs> think of think of a stone. I mean, it's working on geological time in its own sort of way. It's working in a different time matrix than the other bodies. But like, if you mess up the I mean, it's very hard to mess up the ego body, but if you mess that up, you're in trouble. If you mess up the etheric body, you're in trouble in a way that, okay, it would be really terrible if someone cut your leg off, but you can do all sorts of things to live in your life that that, uh, you could not do if you had your etheric body uh, amputated or dismembered in a certain way. Exactly. You'd just be dead. Yeah. There would be no way to drive the pulses of life because- the highest body is the causal body, which is really God dreaming you into existence, called a soul. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it steps down into the mental body, then into the astral body, then the etheric, then the physical. But these are a rainbow. So mm-hmm. my, my statement would be, if you can cut a section out of a rainbow, <laughs> then you can have a problem that's isolated to one element of yourself, which is why I teach holistic health, because... The Western medical model turns human beings into mechanical robots and thinks you just replace parts. And all we got to do is look at the world to see how well that's working, you know. And their approach to addictions and sexual problems is biochemical. Take this pill, mm-hmm. you know. Or, you know, like in prisons, they used to give the prisoners saltpeter to kill their sex drive. That's a, uh, that's a biochemical injunction, mm-hmm. but it is not dealing with the actual impetus, urge, or need. And if you're not dealing with the need, you cannot create meaning out of the process. And that is a death sentence. Right. Or if you're not dealing with the environmental factor that's like caused the thing, right? So, Which would be meeting the need if it's an etiology. Uh, yeah, right. Actually, yeah, right, right. So, um, I mean, I think that just when we talk about addiction, that's another d- distinguishing point I would make from the mainstream model of addiction and what you're talking about and what I'm talking about is that are we actually talking about um, – the repetition, the uh, way that the etheric body works, the way that it's been polluted or messed with or whatever. Um, are we talking about cultural forces? What cultural forces? You know, what <laughs> What my friend Chris Donahue says, which I love, is he's like, if someone's diagnosed you with sex addiction, come to me and I'll undiagnose you, yeah. right? Because as soon as you do that, you actually free the person up to actually do the real exploration that you're talking about, which is what's the need? What's the issue? What things do you believe in that aren't working for you and probably aren't working for most people? And what are you afraid of? Exactly. Because the fastest way to get to the heart of what's really causing a person problems with any aspect of their life is what is your greatest fear about sex or what is your greatest fear about money or what is your greatest fear about relationship or what is your greatest fear about your body and when you hit the greatest fear you know where the charge is at and once you untangle the charge and free that energy up a person really starts to blossom because most people you know those sorts of um Inner entanglements are like short circuits in an electrical circuit, and they can burn a house down. That's why we have a fuse box. But addiction becomes a fuse box, right? If your house, you plug the toaster, the cake mixer, and the kettle in at the same time, it'll blow the breaker to keep the circuit from overloading and burning the house down. But here we plug in bad food, uh, polarized religious ideas, challenging relationships, uh, unresolved traumas, and a whole pile of other stuff. You know, the list would be hours long. And so when people go for help, they don't actually address what's blowing the fuse. They just try to repress the impulse to do that. 
And like all forms of that kind of bad medicine, the medicine itself makes things worse, right? So the so when someone, I mean, like actually being sexually assaulted or raped is a really uh, great example of this. When someone's raped, um, they have to go through an entire process of dealing with the sexual shame that comes from culture aimed at them. Yeah. They have to deal with sometimes going to into the police or legal structure, which also exacerbates the problem because that system is a system of rape and violation. They have to deal with the, the legal system of like accusing the person, going to court, punishing the person, all that kind of stuff that also is not very helpful. They have to have feelings of, uh, or they often will have feelings of being condemned by people or being seen as dirty. So all the sex negativity and the sexual problems and the way cultural sex, it actually makes, it actually is a component of why that is so affecting and deep for people in such a horrible way. And then you have an entire sort of social justice mechanism working right now that's like, if you were raped, that's the most horrible thing that could ever happen to you. The person did the most horrible thing that they could possibly do to you. You'll never heal. And that person is completely unforgivable. And that makes it worse. That makes it, it worse for people. I'm not saying that we should just not have accountability for people that do that or that it's not a, it's not a violating experience, but how are we actually helping people heal and how are we actually helping people get through these experiences? And we should be developing rehabilitation programs for the people that can you know inflict these these invasive acts on others um, which is completely missing from our culture. Our culture treats the people that are challenging to the cultural norm as diseases that need to be locked up and put away, which is no different than going to a doctor and having your uterus cut out without finding out what's wrong with you, right? Mm -hmm. And long is the list of women that have had a hysterectomy that came to me in tears because it did nothing for their pain. In fact, their symptom profile was identical, except now they had a scar and a lot of pain from the surgery. And usually within, you know, six to six sessions to a year, I can work with them through art therapy, plant medicines, drumming, rattling, dancing, mm. singing, chanting, um, story, looking at their myth, looking at their traumas and deep meditative practices, working with spirit guides, working with various other forms of symbolic um, means of projecting your psyche to where it needs to be projected to get answers. And in my experience, every single one of them, in fact, I could almost honestly say the more traumatic the experience was, the more meaning there is hidden in it, if it's worked with intelligently and holistically. One of the things I wrote down while you were talking is, I have had countless patients that have been in various anonymous groups, be it Alcoholics Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous, whatever, and I've found, for the most part, they just keep reinforcing the guilt, shame, and the diagnosis, and it isn't liberating to those people. I've had the great joy of taking people that were um, in Alcoholics Anonymous that were living in this perpetual self-diagnosis and constant torture, um, and working with them with the types of approaches I'm talking about. But I found most of them, when they have a properly run shamanic ceremony with plant medicines, realize that alcohol is such a shitty drug <laughs> and such a base, numbing experience that when you have an experience with you know ayahuasca or mushrooms or any number, San Pedro cactus, um, DMT, whatever the the shaman that you're working with has, if they're skilled at their work, it takes people to such an expansive state and such a deep sense of connection with life and with God that 
going back to alcohol is far less likely. And research showed about 50% of alcoholics no longer went back to alcohol after one properly run LSD ceremony. Mm-hmm. And so when we got mountains of research backing this up, but we keep doing all these games to people in the name of anonymous groups without real skilled holistic approaches, I think it just basically takes people and puts them into a corral. And the corral says, you're an alcoholic, you're a sex addict, you're a, mm. a porn addict, you're a, you're a, you know, a whatever the, the group is for. And I, I think they have their purpose because it's easier to dissipate pain, especially with things like sexual problems amongst people that are suffering from the same sort of category of challenge, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's what a family is supposed to be. A family mm. is supposed to be where we attenuate our pain by sharing it with people that we trust enough to be intimate with about things that are really challenging us. Most families know, you know, where the dirty laundry is with their brothers and sisters and mom and dad. And if they don't, then they're already dysfunctional because there's no relationship there. So I think if you think of the spokes on a wheel, a well-balanced wheel, no matter where you hit the curb, will dissipate the shock through all 28 to 32 spokes. And a family should be a dissipating mechanism. But most families, because of mostly because of religious contortion, are not dissipating structures or traumatic structures. Hmm. And so if a a group is run properly, then each person in the circle becomes a spoke in the wheel and the group facilitators the hub or the axle around which it turns and they should be the deepest, most experienced, wisest, at least most open-minded person with facilitator skills mm-hmm. in the group so that the energy flows through the group and doesn't get stuck. Otherwise, you know, if the wheel's out of balance and you hit the curb, it cracks the rim and bends the spokes. And that's one of the problems. It's the same problem in religion. We have a myriad of people teaching religion that are extremely unenlightened, which is why I love quoting Shankara, who said, nobody can understand scripture until they're enlightened, and when they're enlightened, they don't need it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. nobody can understand sex addiction, addiction until they're enlightened with that mm-hmm. path, and then they don't need the addiction anymore. But then they can become a great facilitator for people that have it because they know how to get across mm-hmm. the fire. Yeah, You know, Bioptimizers makes an amazing product called P3OM, which is a prebiotic product. And it's amazing for uh, not only helping uh, repopulate the gut with uh, friendly bacteria, but as Wade will tell you, it's really, really an amazing uh, product in case you ever feel like you're getting any kind of food poisoning or illness coming on. And Wade's right here with me, and he's the co-founder of Bioptimizers, and he knows more about P3OM than anybody. But I can tell you this, I've had nothing but excellent results and nothing but positive feedback from all my clients and friends that I've turned it on, turned on to P3OM. So Wade, tell us a little bit about P3OM and, and why it works so well. Well, P3M is, we call it the Navy SEAL of probiotics. Amen. Basically, its job is to kick out the bad guys in your body. Uh, Food poisoning is one of those things from bad bacteria. What we've done is we've taken an aggressive strain of L-plantarum. We put it into toxic soup, ran a sine wave to keep a few of them alive. And the few survivors, we grow in very specialized medium to make a cultured, patented enzyme that has extraordinary powers uh, number one, it survives the intestinal tract. Yes. And number two, it is absolutely hunts down uh, pathogens in, this, in the body, bacteria, viruses, these type of things. And 
This is really where the future of probiotics is. It is about developing and culturing and creating super strains of probiotic. Very much like the Navy SEALs go through a training and these yes. individuals mm -hmm. have extraordinary powers to deal with chaos. And in today's world where we want to improve our immunity and our function and our gut health, P3M is head and shoulders above any probiotic out there. So my understanding is it can be used daily as a supplement, but it can also be used in larger quantities as a defense measure. We've tested this uh, literally with over a hundred of our friends who have been suffering from various times of food poisoning. And a handful of those guys, when you're in food poisoning and within 20 to 30 minutes, you complete recovery. That's awesome. And I've, I've uh, seen it happen myself. Angie has felt bad a number of times and uh, several of people in the, in the house or family have. And I say, take 10 if that doesn't feel good in an hour, take 20. And you've told me you can't overdose on them, which is amazing. Yeah, that's the beauty of P3M. You can't take too much. They'll fight off the bad guys and uh, they'll get your digestion rocking and rolling the way it should. So if you want to have a healthy gut and you want some defense, carry P3M with you wherever you go, airplanes, cars, business meetings, hotels, conferences, and you've got your Navy SEALs in the bottle and they're ready for you anytime. Wade, how do we, we get a hold of your amazing P3OM product? Super easy. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash living4d and put in Paul10 for your 10% discount code. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash living4d and Paul 10 for your discount code. You got it. There you go. Try it. You'll love it. I use them. I can't tell you enough how much I love this product. I think it's a genius product and you've heard it right from the master himself. Get your P3OM. Let us know how you feel about it. Lots of love. It's really interesting to hear you bring up the 12 step groups, the anonymous groups. I do think that, I do think Alcoholics Anonymous probably works better than sex. And then there's like the love addiction or compulsive, whatever those ones only because, well, one, because it has a longer history, but I think that there is a, <laughs> not to scare people away with this word, but I mean it in the esoteric occult sense, that there's an encristed sort of presence in some of those groups. What the good happens in those groups is when people realize what those groups can offer, which is there's that no crosstalk thing. People talk to each other and they just listen to each other and they accept. Someone could say something like, I hit a kid with my car. And the other, pr the group of people sits and listens to that and they hold it. That's really beautiful. And then people that say, we share this illness, come together and talk about that. Mm -hmm. But the way that that's positioned um, often look from the outside is like, well, those people there, I'm not saying you're saying this, but people might look from the outside and say, well, those people, uh, sure, they go to Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's not working. They're still drinking. But actually what it's done for a lot of people is help created this sort of containment unit where it's like, okay, well, they relapsed, but they got to go back or whatever. Um, and then they stopped drinking again for a few years and then maybe they relapsed again. But what what the problem is, I think, is when people who are in Alcoholics Anonymous will also view it that way. Like, mm -hmm. oh, it didn't work for me because I relapsed or I mm -hmm. w whatever. When it's actually like, if you look around at the gathering and communion that's happening in those mm -hmm. groups, that actually is really beautiful. That yeah. is something that is enriching the spirit and the soul. And when you tune into it that way, as I've seen some alcoholics do, it actually does then have the effect of being healing because you're in the proximity of, for 
my term, you're in the proximity of Christ. You're in the proximity of a healing being that mm-hmm. has allowed you to gather and hold each other and be there for mm-hmm. each other and listen. So that actually does have a healing effect. But I do think, as you're saying, it, it doesn't solve all the problems, right? And I think a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous recognize that too. They're like, all this does is it stops me from spiraling, mm-hmm. right? But I still have all this other work to do now. It does you know? create an anchor for people. Like, okay, yes. there's a bunch of us trying to avoid this challenge. So it's easier, I think, for <laughs> just like a lot of people don't do well exercising alone, but they can exercise with other people. Like my mother does not like exercising alone. She'd rather hire a trainer or go with a friend. And if she can't get either of those, she tends to be less likely to exercise. I'm the opposite. I prefer exercising alone Mm -hmm. because it's Mm -hmm. a deep meditation for me. And I do a lot of studies while I exercise. And I do a lot of, you know, Mm -hmm. um, meditation on how I'm going to outline an article or whatever. So because I've been exercising my whole life, I don't have to think when I exercise like a lot of people do. And my body, as long as my body's moving, it seems to harmonize my mind. But, uh, you know, what you're referring to with the Christ issue, Jesus said, whenever two or more get together in my name, I will be there. Well, the word Christ means one with all that is. People forget that. Jesus Christ is not reference to a person, it's reference to an experience. And the experience is the experience of oneness and unity and realizing that all is God and the basis of all is love. And in Jungian psychology, they speak of what's called the third. And the third, like right now, you and I are engaged And the third in Jungian psychology is the spirit that is made of Connor and Paul. Mm -hmm. And by accessing the spirit, which requires that one sort of let go of their ego or a need to dominate or have their own way or, or even discussion, because the word discussion actually has a link to the word percussion, which means to cut up or to chunk things into pieces where dialogue is more like a river flowing. Mm. And to be in a dialogue is... You can only be in a dialogue if you're not trying to control the outcome. But a discussion usually is someone's trying to get you to an agreement with them, Mm -hmm. right? I'm going to discuss this with you, and my secret agenda is to get you to agree with me. But a dialogue is where we go into this open discussion without knowing where it's going to go. We just throw something on the table. Okay, who feels like they have a sex addiction? And then we just see what happens. And the point I'm making is, is to be in a dialogue, in my opinion, you have to really let go of your own agenda, I teach in dialogue, and it drives a lot of my students nuts because they're so addicted to following manuals, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they oh, you missed this, you missed this, and they're all anxious about that. I said, yeah, I wrote that down so you could read it, but mm-hmm. you can't read what I'm talking about right now. You can't read it mm-hmm. because it's relevant to the class as a whole. And so to prove this to people, I'll say, okay, how many of you right now in this class have a problem with feeling that you have an inability to manage your sex drive? And inevitably, out of 25 people, 14 hands go up. I say, did you look around the room? You see? So if I just follow the manual, 14 people aren't going to get touched where they need to get touched in the soul right now and get some freedom and some different perspective. So the point I'm making Mm. is we are in a dialogue which requires me to be open to the presence of Connor, to the essence of Connor, to who he really is and what he really brings to the table. But I can't do that if I'm thinking, this fucking guy takes it up the ass and he's he's dirty, he's a sinner. And God's You'd be gonna, far too aroused to respond. God's, God, God's going to burn him in hell. See, that, that's, there's no third in that. You yeah, know? What, no. what there is there is nothing but guilt, shame, fear, and judgment. And mm-hmm. judgment immediately creates separation and kills the flow. But the honest part of me says, wow, you know, I've had some pretty interesting anal experiences myself. And though I don't have an inherent tendency to be sexually attracted to men, 
I do have an honest awareness from my own explorations. For example, you know, I was trained in, in intrapelvic therapy, and in order to learn the muscles and know the treatments so that I didn't hurt other people, I would put some ghee on my fingers and go up my own ass and through in my pelvic floor and find all the obturator internus, obturator externus, the levator ani, etc. And it's very, very easy to get sexually aroused even when your intention is to actually practice therapy. And I remember the first time I did it, I thought, God, no wonder gay guys like having sex like this because imagine someone giving you a blowjob while you're also taking it from behind you'd just be a sexual explosion (laughs) and the first time one of my girlfriends you know pretty much said if you're a man hold still otherwise you're a pussy which was just what she needed to say to me as a paratrooper and i'm like okay she's this girl's extremely hot i better i better (laughs) i better man up but I had wild and, and just, you know, deep spiritual experiences, but some of them required me to cross the limitations within myself. Like, okay, let's do the exploration, and I got to shut off the critic inside. Mm. But the, 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 the driving force of the union approach of the third is that that's, you see, the deeper reality is, this is my perspective. Me and you aren't together by accident. Mm-mm. Whatever can move billions and trillions of stars without constant collisions and make planets and make people with a hundred trillion cells that function in incredible harmony and make bodies that are so soft and mushy that can take tremendous beatings and all the magic that makes life work can orchestrate the perfection of itself and the awareness of itself and the fulfillment of itself through what is commonly called soul contracts. Yogananda says you won't so much as bump into a person in the street that you don't have a soul contract with. Mm -hmm. In other words, all souls are bringing something to each other, and that something can include trauma. It can include pain. My father was an absolute motherfucker, Mm -hmm. and he was violent and brutal and I remember joining the paratroopers thinking I was going to go be with the tough guys, and I got there, and these guys were pussies compared to... Mm-hmm. I, I used to say to them, you guys wouldn't handle one fucking day on the farm with my old men. If you think this is hard, you are a pussy. Mm-hmm. My father will take the life out of you with a fucking axe handle. You put you in front of a, a, about two truckloads of wood and say, you don't leave here until that firewood split and you got blisters on your hands. And if you don't do it, you got something coming for you that makes those blisters very forgettable. And so I had to heal from that trauma. But when I got past the victim part of myself, I realized that what was buried inside of there was the ability to focus, was the ability to deal with adversity, Mm. was the ability to learn to take direction from someone that knows more than you about how to get a job done, and a long, long list of other things. And I reached a point in my life where I looked back and said, I don't know if I could have done the work to build an entire institute and study that hard and be that consistent with spiritual practices if I didn't have to go through what I went through to learn that I'm a lot tougher than I think I am and I can focus a lot better than I think I can Mm. in adverse situations. Mm -hmm. And so... The, the point I'm driving at to bring it full circle is that the third is the part of us that carries the Christ consciousness that is embedded in all of us as an I, as an entity of consciousness that's self-aware. Mm. But when we get together, then I have access to all the beauty and all the wisdom in your soul, and you have access to all the beauty and wisdom in my soul, and all we've got to do is relax and quit thinking, and it rises up in us 
as a natural intuition or instinct or desire to express something that maybe we've never been comfortable expressing before, and all of a sudden, magic begins to unfold and real healing starts to happen. Mm -hmm. And the problem is people keep staying down at the eye level where it becomes a discussion or a diagnosis or a debate, and there's not a lot of healing in there because it's all based on defense so there's of the ego yeah so there's there's a couple ways to say what you said in a way uh, well so first i would just talk about parallel lines like yeah. people say parallel lines never meet but they do meet they meet in the fact that they have the same form and the same directionality they don't mm -hmm. intersect in the way right mm -hmm. i find that actually a good sort of uh, metaphor or analogy for what happens with christ so someone has pointed out um you know, if you look at if you look at Buddha, his eyes are often closed, right? When you look at Christ, his eyes are are open. Um, he what, just painted the wrong color, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so when you look at right, yeah, right, exactly, his eyes. But when anyway, let me let me put this differently. So there are all these like um, versions where it's uh, of the Christ, where it's like the Christ is this color, the Christ is that color. It's this race, that race. You know, rather than the Palestinian Jew that he probably was crucified yeah. on the cross. Um, and I understand the impulse of that, and I like it um, for its own reason. But sometimes I like to say also, look, one of the points is that he doesn't look like you. Now, I am Arab, so he does kind of look like me. Mm. But, but one of the points is that he doesn't look like you. So actually, what you are seeing is another individual suffering that you actually, you, that's a completely separate being. That's a separate being from you. So what you have to do is strive to understand his suffering. And in the striving is where you meet him. Mm -hmm. Not in the actual, oh, I know what that's like, or mm -hmm. I am, but actually it's in the striving and in some ways never achieving. Because that's a form of love. It's a form of love. It's how I know, like I could go down a philosophical um, uh, wormhole and say, well, I don't know that Paul is actually here. And there's actually, there's very little way to escape solipsism. There's very little way to like escape the philosophical problem that you could all be in my head. But what happens is that- Well, both would be true. Through, that's true, right? Or, or as the, uh, the occultist- if you, if you close your eyes, I can touch you and say, here I am. Yeah, that's true. The occultist, Lon Milo Duquette says, it's all in your head. You just have no idea how big your head is, right? So, the, <laughs> so the, but the, but the, th the thing being that you know, I I don't mean this to sound egotistical, but I grant you existence out of love. Mm. When I realize that you're a separate person, that I can never completely apprehend you, that you'll always in some way be individuated. But the act of saying Paul exists, that actually is an act of love. And that's where mm -hmm. we meet, you know, mm -hmm. through that separation. Mm -hmm. There's another way to say it, which is... That's why I love namaste so much. It, I worship the divine in you mm -hmm. because individuality mm. is a product of unity without mm. which there could be no love mm -hmm. as an experience if god did not create the illusion of indiv individuality there could be no subject object experience right. so there right. would be no way for love to move so the paradox of it is the illusion is the individuality mm -hmm. but the depth of us the core of us is consciousness itself for which is a, you've got a non-local reality, which means it's everywhere and nowhere simultaneously, mm. and there's no division in it. Mm -hmm. And so, I think part of the problem with all this stuff is that our culture and world culture are terribly uneducated in the mysteries, in what the shaman learned, in um, mm -hmm. esoteric awareness, 
And most people are too distracted to go deep enough into themselves to find everybody else there. Yeah. So, so let me say one, I think it's, that's true. And also a necessary part of our development was to experience that separation from each other in spirit, right? So that's the sort of grand consciousness version of Mm -hmm. what you're talking about. And now we've got to find our, not our way back, but our way forward. The namaste thing I like, you know, it's your two hands touching each other. So, um, it, there's, <laughs> let's try to bring this back to sex for a second. So when I touch you, if I were to touch your body, it is at once the way in which I would say, you're there, I'm here. I can counter your boundary, the resistance, mm-hmm. that I'm separate from you. And also touches the way that we meet each other by through, through affection. I caress you and we create a sense of inner warmth and togetherness. So isn't that fascinating that that inversion of the experience, so it's that spiritual form of things. I touch you, so I recognize that we're separate and in, and in the fact that we're separate together means that we are actually together, that we are meeting. It's an interesting thing about sex. People think of sex as a way to merge with the other. While there is a way in which we meet, it's not through our bodies. It's even if you go inside somebody, you're still outside of them. doesn't matter. Your two bodies are not, uh, they're, 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 sure, they're commingling or there's a space that's filled with an object or whatever, but you don't meet on that level. In fact, one of the w- things that happens with sex is to say, we're utterly separate, but we're together. Even if we try to interlock our bodies, we're still separate. And in that, we are together and that we meet and that separateness it, across that divide we find each other but it's not through the physical act and so people expect the physical act to give that to them and then they end yeah. up being like completely lost because of course it doesn't give that to them well what what you're saying in different words is that the physical act is symbolic of something transcendent and that's what a symbol does it connects you to that which is transcendent so that which transcends the i is the all mm-hmm. or the we Mm-hmm. right there is no mm-hmm. i and we is the saying but it takes a willingness to transcend and usually the great limitation of transcendence is fear mm-hmm. fear of the unknown fear of the unexpected fear of other people's judgments fear of of what your own inner critic is going to say you know glutathione is an extremely powerful antioxidant i don't know if any of you have ever noticed on my YouTube videos from uh, a couple of years ago, I had a spot forming just below my left eye, which was the result of me doing so much research on herbs. And Angie, who is a nutritionist, said, you should try some glutathione. Maybe you need more antioxidant support. And literally day by day, I watched it disappear as soon as I started taking glutathione. But I didn't have the kind of glutathione that Symbiotica produces in their new Regenesis product. So I've got Shervin here to really explain what is unique about their new glutathione product. Shervin, what can we expect from Regenesis? Well, that's an interesting story, Paul, um, regarding that spot. And it just shows you exactly how strong glutathione is. We went out of our way. You know, it took us about 18 months to develop this, a lot of hard work. The entire team of scientists got together. And what we found was that most glutathions on the open market oxidize because of the sulfur compound that's attached to it. As soon as oxygen hits it, you get this sulfur you know, layout, which is very, very unpleasant. Our glutathione, which is liposomal, so it is protected, is bounded to lactoferrin. Lactoferrin is the, is the amino acid chain that makes colostrum colostrum. So this is our first non-vegan formula. It's still vegetarian, but it isn't vegan. Along with that, we have CoQ10, 
PQQ, which is pyroquinolone, which is a good brain nootropic, and lactobacillus rhamnosus, a human strain probiotic. All of these come together. It supports healthy intestinal tract, mitigates food environmental allergies, improves nerve growth factor, reinforces the immune system, neutralizes free radicals, antiviral, antibacterial, removes heavy metals, and just boosts the brain-gut relationship, which we know now is so critical to longevity and optimum health. This is truly one of our favorite, favorite formulas. Also, unlike a lot of supplements, it tastes very, very good. I was super <laughs> impressed when I tried it. Yeah, we find that to be very important. And again, we don't use anything artificial. Everything is organic. They're all extracts and there's zero sugar in any of our products. Awesome. So head on over to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. That's symbiotica.com. And on checkout, use your code, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15, to get your 15% discount on Regenesis and any of the other amazing products at Symbiotica. Enjoy. And if you have spots on your skin, you might just get rid of them with this amazing product. I wrote a, a note while you were talking there, and that is that a lot of people are unaware of the fact that limitation is absolutely essential to creativity, right? If God is unconditional love, then you have to ask yourself, could God possibly know anything about itself without creating limitation? Because by definition, there's nothing to know in that which, which is unconditional. So the paradox of God is that God has to create illusions called limitations in order to have an experience within itself. And as God, there's nothing else to know but God. So all there is, is God, which is kind of one of God's big jokes, is right, everyone's looking for God, but here you are, and here it all is. The point I'm driving at is that it is our bodies that create enough illusion of limitation and separation for us to engage relationship. But I think that as we grow spiritually, <clears throat> like I, I don't need to have sex with either of my wives to have a very deep, loving experience, because who they are to me is so far beyond their body mm -hmm. that I love them at the level of soul. Mm -hmm. I love them as an expression of the divine. I love them for their amazing gifts and talents. And I also love them for the fact that each in our own way, we point out each other's limitations and also exemplify to each other what our strengths are so that we can grow by observing and participating in that. Mm. Like Penny and Angie both have taught me a million things that I wouldn't have learned. And some of those lessons have been challenging and painful lessons that were where there was a lot of friction or a lot of um, limitation because one of us or both of us or all of us didn't feel like we were getting what we wanted or what we expected. And so in order to grow, the conflict has to allow... The bravery in conflict is staying connected at the heart, because if you don't stay connected at the heart, then conflict just creates deeper and deeper separation. And if that type of separation doesn't get healed by connecting at the heart, then sex only polarizes the conflict and the separation even more, because now you're only meeting for um, some form of gratification that is absent of the real connection. And then what happens is you're not having sex with a soul, you're masturbating with someone else's body because it feels better than your own hand. Mm -hmm. And so that brings sex into a form of um, mummification, for lack of a better term, or um, mm -hmm. it makes it stale, it makes it um, unfulfilling. 
and 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 it can even begin to feel dirty because you realize that you're engaging in an act of love without the love and i think that pre- creates a lot of pain for people that that could be healed by just saying what is it going on in between us that's stopping us from really connecting at the heart when we're making love mm. or ha- i'm using making love as having sex because i think sex is one of the most important um indicators on the dashboard of health vitality and consciousness you understand my point there like if your battery meter says you only got 11 volts you're lucky if your car starts and you better go figure out <laughs> if it's a dead battery or an alternator problem mm-hmm. if your oil pressure is too high or too low most uh, people that understand an engine knows you have an indicator of trouble if your engine's overheating that's not a good sign but when our sex meter starts to indicate separation disconnection Mm -hmm. or a lack of fulfillment most people either think it's something wrong with them blame it on their partner or go get some kind of drug for it without realizing it's almost always something to do with unresolved emotional tensions or idea conflicts such as uh, the wife is pro-vaccination and the husband's holistic and says let's look into the options and she says absolutely not well i can tell you with something that deep um, if you don't resolve that it'll show up in your in your sex life and it'll show up as an act of separation not an act of connection yeah so the problem of people being separate when they have sex um, in a way that that is is incommensurable i think that that also just goes back to one of the things that i was saying before for me which is like this idea that we're supposed to be have our consciousness obliterated or merely absorbed into the other when we're having sex rather than just tuning to what's happening so it's like we we get a picture from it's it's worse in like Hollywood movies than it is in porn. We get a picture from Hollywood movies that's like sex is you burst into the room with your partner completely loving, you like hit the lamp over the nightstand and you're mm. falling on the floor and just fucking and it's so intense and whatever. But usually it's like you can having sex with someone and you're like, you know, it's fun, but you know, a thought will pop in your head, you're like, Oh, I need to get the groceries tomorrow, or like, does this blowjob make me look fat? Or like whatever <laughs> it is. You know what I mean? So you have these like I haven't had that one. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all these like, you know, these these thoughts going through your head and then people can leave that experience and be like why did i have those thoughts uh, i shouldn't have had those thoughts when i was having sex with my partner people might have that idea because their image of sex is that it's supposed to be immersive and obliterating but in fact like anything your thoughts will be carried around with you you're being all the challenges so it's to the extent that you can sort of a light on or attenuate or view that and understand it and try to understand what's going on there and be able to communicate with your partner that the separation starts to go away. So we shouldn't take for granted that uh, even as we're having sex with someone that we love, that these things aren't going to show up or flash in our heads or whatever, because we're still just living. Like, well, obviously, that's a, you're still you know? you're dealing with life. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, exactly. and you know, part of the challenge, Connor, is that I think sex is such such a vast everything. It's vast totally. in consciousness. It's vast in its capacity to heal. It's vast in its capacity to destroy. It's it's really, you know, you're talking about, it's not like we're talking about somebody that has a violence issue or somebody who has a, a syndrome, Tourette's syndrome, or, or um, someone who has an attitude problem or, you know, sex is really something that you could study for many lifetimes and still really be getting surprises almost every day. I mean, I've gotten endless surprises mm-hmm. working with my clients and and just within my own 
family, there's all sorts of interesting challenges and situations that have emerged and made me go, wow, there's something going on there that I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. And um, the most paradoxical thing is sex is a very primordial, if not the first act of God, <laughs> because nobody or no thing would be here without out of act of creativity and an act of creativity at the level of god is an act of sex because it takes the yin and the yang the feminine and the masculine to create anything the yin is in tantri the shakti is the source of limitation and material form and shiva is the source of energy that flows through everything as consciousness or awareness mm-hmm. so you know, if you look at it from a religious perspective, if you look at it from a spiritual perspective, or you just look at it from a relationship perspective, or you look at it from an esoteric perspective, sex is the ultimate engagement in the act that leads to creation at every single scale of reality. And I think a lot of people's perceptions, awareness, and understanding of sex is so razor blade narrow compared to the truth of sex that if they just meditated on what Mm. sex really means and where does it come from long enough, they would find that you get led right back to God. So so one of the things that people should do is ask themselves, what is sex, right? Because most people don't have an answer for that, which is strange. You know, they might give an example. Well, it's, you know, some, it's what we do to make babies. Well, yeah, but is that most sex acts? No. Okay, well, it's penis in vagina or a vagina on penis. Well, is that all the sex? No. Okay, so keep going and you keep following that and following that. And suddenly you start gathering this larger and larger picture and it keeps spreading out. And one of the one of the most profound things about Freud is that you imagine this person sitting there who is looking at the way the world has worked for a long time or believed itself to work, which is since Aristotle, which is we get knowledge and then we get new knowledge and we overturn the old knowledge and that actually we're subjects of knowledge. But Freud sits and sort of surveys everything. And he says, no, actually, we're subjects of desire. Like, Mm -hmm. actually, this is about our desires and our drives, what we want and what we don't want. And when you view the world that way, if I look at this bookshelf over here, there's a book that I want. There's Mm -hmm. a book that I don't want. There's one that might repulse me. I mean, I love books, so I'm very promiscuous in that way. So I'm going to want a lot of them. As you can see. (laughs) Right. But there's going to be some ones that I don't want that repulse me, that I'm not interested in. The same with the color of the floor, the kinds of light that are coming through, food, certain words that I might say that that you might say, uh, temperatures. So we see that actually everything around us is pulsing with some form of desire, with some form of attraction, mm-hmm. repulsion, mm-hmm. drive, what we move to, what we move away from. And even so repulsion I, is the desire to move away. Exa- exactly. So it's linked so, to desire. And to move towards something else, mm-hmm. right? So sex is actually everywhere. Sex, the, the pulse of what is sex is everywhere. And that goes right back to the original. Even breath. It, totally. The, in, <laughs> the penetration <laughs> the, the in and out of the of the air itself. So it goes right back to the original sex acts, um, according to the scientific narrative of it. So one of them is that you know in the sort of primordial world of viruses, before life even emerges as a biological form, you have these uh, bounded things, these bounded membranes that are dissolving, um, and parts of their genome are going into other things. So these are viruses. So before life exists, sex sex exists. Yes. And then 
you have life, so you have bacteria, and bacteria in that primordial soup, they can't keep their membranes when sunlight hits them. So their way of surviving is sort of surviving, quote unquote, is moving, which is lateral gene transfer, is moving their biological DNA, genetic, genomic material from one bounded membrane to the other. So then you see that actually the sun was our first sex partner, that the sun, and what happened in that act is the sex act is a dissolution and a reforming of boundary content and sharing with the other and that's always happening with every breath with everything we see Mm -hmm. with everything we survey with everything that comes in and out of us so the idea that (laughs) we can just fix how we relate to sex by saying well uh maybe i'll just put rose petals on the bed or like maybe i'll go to the sex addiction uh therapy place and stop stop having sex or maybe i'll just watch feminist porn or maybe i'll whatever the sort of fixes that she would have for it it's all around us you can't can't fix it. It's actually what's pulsing in the very fabric of creation itself. It is. So, and it's conducive it's, it to is, our being. It's the breath of life. Yes, we all level. have our own Big Bang, right? Yes, <laughs> so to speak. We yes, and and hopefully not just one. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, <laughs> and even the concept of the Big Bang as a single event is is somebody who needs some sex counseling. <laughs> but but that is but the big bang's an interesting metaphor for sex because in the way I just described it what scientists would say about the big bang is like you have this like somethingness that emerges from a, a, a collapsing nothingness, which is so strange to think about it. And there's this great book called What is Sex by Alenka Zupancic, who's a psychoanalyst. Very dense and theoretical, so people can jump in or not, but um, she basically says, you know, sex is the nothingness from which all emerges. Now, I love that concept. I think she's wrong, ultimately, because I think actually that's spirit and Christ and all, all this other stuff. But I love the concept of talking about sex that way, that everything comes from this nothingness. And so, So we have then all this longing and all this, because part of sex is a nothingness. Part of sex is a a something that can't ever be achieved. It's that desire, that yearning. And so if we would accept that and take that in and uh, see that as part of sex, then we wouldn't expect it to do everything for us all the time, to fill the hole, <laughs> to, 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 you know, uh, take care of, you know, every single desire and yearning we have, or to have our sexual appetite satiated after we have sex. Of course that doesn't happen, you know? There's a couple things I'll share with you. One, <laughs> part of the problem w- that people have with ideas of the Big Bang coming out of nothing and and part of the challenge with the lady you referenced saying sex comes out of nothing is that it is a Western mind materialistic concept of nothing. Metaphysically, there is no such thing as nothing, but there is such thing as no thing. Unconditional love is no thing. I recently interviewed Walt Thornhill, who's the chief scientific advisor for the Electric Universe Project or Theory and for the Thunderbolts Project, which is a, are you familiar with the Electric Universe? Mm -mm. Basically, it's a group of scientists around the world that are validating that the whole universe is an electric organism. And so I said, okay, well, well, (laughs) to have an electrical circuit, you have a positive potential and a negative potential. But where is the source Mm -hmm. of the power that's moving through the universe? And he said, I don't know. Well, Very few people at any level of science would have an objective answer for that, and you can't really answer it objectively because how do you measure something that's unconditional? Mm -hmm. So the point that I'm driving to is we are so oriented to something not being real if it can't be weighed and measured, but unconditional love is the highest form of love, and no thing is the 
essence from which, the soul from which all things emerge. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that sect, sex emerges not from nothing, but from no thingness. And a union experience is a resolution of the ego from something into nothing. And there you're having the experience of God or unity. And um, the other thing is, there is something that sex does achieve, in my opinion. Everything that you would call the past or the future is emergent from the now, and the now is eternal. No matter how old you are or where you've been or what you've done, it's all happened in the now. And every sex act occurs in the now. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that the sex act gives, and anything if you use the practice of mindfulness, is a visceral sense, a lived sense of the experience of the now. Mm -hmm. And because all emerges from the now, which itself cannot be pinned down objectively, it's no thing but paradoxically the source of everything. And if God is unconditional love, that's a mathematical equivalent of zero, which is forever. Mm -hmm. right because it's the source of all things knowable or countable and i think that the sex act is an opportunity for us to become more present in the now and a great way to think of this is if someone feels insecure about their sexual abilities and they go read a book on sex they're likely to go to bed with someone and think of all these procedures and be frustrated when their partner's not responding very well. But really what they're doing is applying a, a, a left-brain mathematical logical approach to something that is far more likely to be fulfilling if it's right-brain intimacy, wholeness, connection without all the, the story attached to it. And so for me, my greatest sexual moments are the ones that immersed me so deeply into the now that there wasn't even any need to look toward the future or the past because I was so fully present. I mean, I can say that I've been fortunate to have sex that was so complete, so full, and so mind-blowing that I actually felt if I was to die at that moment, I had had the most ultimate experience of being alive and that everything else after that was just gravy a bonus <laughs> right i think that's two of those brought my kids and mana and zoe into the world <laughs> uh, well that's great that's great that it was one of those times that uh, i mean i think the the idea that sex is in the now we should talk about that for one second like well that's the orgasm thing no what no, a, no not necessarily an orgasm no thing. no but i, I want to presence say, i know but i want to just say about the orgasm yeah, sure. like one of the things that's really powerful about an orgasm is the way it changes the sense the time sense yes. like actually Very the much. linearity and the presence of time like it actually changes so what you're feeling when you're having that rush of pleasure actually is a shift in uh temporality and spatiality yes. for you was mm -hmm. so that's really profound and that's why people use the orgasm for magical procedures all the time right the other thing is as far as uh as far as meeting uh, as far as meeting people and have these profound experiences something that I, and and in, instead of having all the actual sort of things that you've read or the things that you've seen or whatever and that you're bringing one of the things that's so profound about doing sex work is whether i was being hired as an escort when i was doing that or i was doing porn people would say all the time do you get to choose your scene partners and i was like how like do you not think that the entire industry would have ground to a halt if that were the, the case when it was set up that way now people are doing only fans so it's a bit of a different thing but i would always say like one of the most profound things is that i had to have sex with people i wasn't attracted to all the time 
right? You have or have not? I have. Yes, I had yes. to for of course, work, yeah, right? I was say. So when you're being hired as an escort, it's like mystery date. Like you open the door and there's a person standing there. You're like, okay, I guess I got to find my way into this experience or the same thing with the people that I performed with. And one of the really profound things about that was that I discovered that intimacy in its way is impersonal. And what I mean by that is not that you don't meet another per- or you, you don't have a connection with another person through it, but it's something that you create. Most people think of intimacy as like, oh, I meet someone and there's chemistry. Well, that's sure, that happens sometimes, but that's also a lazy way of just thinking about things that you're going to just event- just have chemistry with everybody. In fact, you can create chemistry with anyone mm-hmm. out of this act of generating intimacy with people. And then you can have these really profound interactions with people that you never would have. I mean, the the people, the range of people that I've had sex with, you know, who I was not initially attracted to, but that I found these profound experiences with that led to a kind of communion with them through our bodies, or it could have been the conversations that spun out afterwards, or the things I thought after I had had sex with them and the things that they thought. I mean, all that unraveled because sex is for me, and I, I think this is true for everybody, but we, we should stop thinking of sex as this thing that has to go a certain way. and Rather think of sex as conversation. The thing that sex is the most like is conversation. You and I can have a conversation once and have tw- want to have 20 more, even if one conversation we have is boring sometimes, mm-hmm. right? It's free. It's playful. It can go in any direction mm-hmm. that we want it to. Mm-hmm. We can have a frustrated moment. Mm-hmm. We can have a moment where we're kind of checked out. But the sort of freeness of conversation is much more like sex than almost anything else that I could identify. I think that's a beautiful encapsulation because it is a, look, a dance is like a conversation, mm. right? If you see like a Hindu um, myth danced out. I've watched countless of these things, and it is as though I am being spoken to at a level beneath language centers, like I I speak English, therefore I'm watching and hearing something in a foreign language, some aspect of Hinduism, but something inside of me knows what's being conveyed. I've had many experiences of listening to music in Italian or in a foreign language, and it's as though that the the essence of the music is speaking to my soul, to something in my being, and I feel as though that the conversation is taking place, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, when you look at how far nature goes to create beauty, I look at a peacock, right? A male peacock is a spectacle of beauty. Look at all the creatures in nature that have these most amazing ways of presenting themselves. Look at women and how they adorn themselves with makeup and clothing, and men do that too, but not like women do. But really, what is that? It's it's all really part of a dialogue that ultimately in some way has a deep connection to the act of sex Mm -hmm. at any level, Mm -hmm. right? And so I'm just agreeing that I think sex really is the ultimate conversation. I think it's it's even better if it's a dialogue because of the the conversation often is too limited a concept where a dialogue is so mm-hmm. open mm-hmm. and so free. Um, <laughs> a joke came to my mind because you were talking about having sex with people that you don't know or that you may not be attracted to. And there's an old joke from when I was in logging camp, never judge the mantelpiece when you're poking the fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's actually like a piece of advice that I would give people if they want to explore 
their their sexuality more is to have sex with people they're not attracted to. My friend Mona puts it this way. She, Mona Altawi, she's like, which there should be one day every year where people just have sex with the gender that they're not attracted to. <laughs> but I think it, what I don't mean is like, obviously you don't want someone forcing you or whatever. That's not the point. It, it never, people don't have the, People should not be pushing your own boundaries, but you should be looking into and seeing if you want to dissolve or work with some of your own. So that, find somebody that, that I think is a legitimate approach. Right. I, I think if we just gave that description or that prescription carte blanche, <laughs> right, unless right. we healed the issues of religion, we we would just have a huge satanic party with well, everybody's right. <laughs> heads completely caving in. Well, right. And so and so what I would say too is like, look, have sex have sex with somebody that you're not attracted to. But if you can't manage that masturbate thinking about people that you're not attracted to. See what happens. See what comes up. See where your repulsions and attractions are. That's a safe space for you to be able to experiment with that. And you might find weird things showing up for you that you continue to investigate. See what happens. I mean, and I think that's also a good thing for partners to do when they feel like locked into monogamous relationships that might not be healthy monogamous relationships for them. It's like, well, talk to each other, masturbate together while you talk to each other about what you're fantasizing. So you don't have to bring a third person in, see what happens, see what comes up, and then discuss it. Because that's that imaginative space, which because there's so much, so many, like I was talking about before, desires, drives, repulsions, attractions in our imagination, it lends itself to that, I think, rather naturally. So experiment and play in that space. Yeah, I think <laughs> a sad reality is that uh, a, an unfortunate percentage of the world population of people that are married are married to people that they're not attracted to. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> till the Christian till death do you part thing's not working very well because the average marriage is two and a half years long and the average person today has three marriages in their lifetime. So it means <laughs> that we're spending some time hanging out with people we're not attracted to in marriages until we finally get up the courage to be honest and say, it's time for me to go find somebody more fulfilling. Right, right, right. So, I mean, you're, you're, it's funny what you're saying because you're you're actually saying, well, lots of people are having sex with people they're not attracted to, they're married to them. Yes. But what I, what I mean is, but what one of the things too with marriage is like, it's because people don't realize what they're doing. Um, it, so much of what we're talking about now is bringing a kind of awareness and spiritual uh, in, in inquisitiveness or care or love to physicality. And when you do that, it's transformative. Like one of the things I say about marriage is like, isn't it weird that people can walk around with an extreme BDSM sex toy on their ring finger, showing it off to everybody and nobody cares. It's like, you have this thing on your hand that's like, uh, okay, I'm with one person. I'm not allowed to talk uh, to anybody else. I have to only think about this person. I'm only allowed to have sex with this one person. That's a that's a pretty extreme bondage toy that you're walking yeah, around and showing around. If we would realize that, if we would realize the sexual perversity of that, what does BDSM stand oh, for? Oh, bondage. Uh, it stands for bondage, uh, submission. Wait, wait, yes. Bondage. Gosh, D. bondage. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's the BDSM. Bondage, domination, submission, and then uh, masochism. masochism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so what the, is this? A, a, a circle of barbed wire around yeah, the finger? But, but it is like a signifier that that's the kind of relationship you have. That's like, that's my person who doesn't have sex with anybody else. We don't talk about sex with anybody else. They're not supposed to think about sex with anybody else, and they have to do that for the rest of their lives. That's pretty perverse. I mean, oh, I, think, I see. You're talking about a wedding ring. Exactly. I it was actually some kind of a actual like <laughs> sex ring that you wore. I mean, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. You know, do you know? I got so it. I actually, you know, I thought maybe it was something that vibrated <laughs> or you know, like like a some kind of you know special because now they got 
rings right. for every damn thing. You know, like some next thing you know, a Macintosh will be coming out <laughs> with a sex ring to go with their their watch. And the next sponsor for Living 4D. But no, I, uh, well, I'm, I'm not into that. I, no, I'm just shit, I'm just teasing. Yeah. But the but the thing is, like, if people would realize that monogamy is that kind of restraint, perverse relationship, they might be a lot happier with what they're doing because they could sexualize the loss. Yeah, right. They could eroticize the. Um, now, I'm not recommending people do that. I mean, I think it's interesting because I listened to that episode you did with Aubrey Marcus about his moving in and out of polyamory, open relationship, Mm -hmm. all that. And I was thinking about how, you know, so many people are in monogamous relationships because they're afraid of, because they're, because they're insecure. But the flip side of that is so many people are in open relationships because they're afraid of committing, Commitment. right? Mm-hmm. The point is not that one is better than the other. The point is to be able to actually choose. But most people don't actually choose. Most yeah. people, the default is monogamy, and they can't even uh, sexualize or eroticize that, and there's often no conversation about that. But then when people choose open relationships as the sort of opposite of that, they're doing it in rebellion to this thing, and a lot of times that doesn't work either. So it has to be an actual choice and a development of what you really want, and that takes a lot of investigation and communication and care. So that's what I would you know, recommend to people is having some kind of awareness on the things that you're doing, a spiritual inquisitiveness and care. That's what my first marriage of 17 years did. Uh, being monogamous as, in my first marriage for 17 years was a real awakener to me to the fact that I didn't do well with those kind of constraints. Mm. And I, I really really it's very important to me to have complete honesty with my 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 spouse and in this case two of them but and i just said after all that i said i absolutely cannot get married to somebody who expects me to be monogamous because it is completely unnatural for me mm-hmm. it might be fine for others but it does not work for me so when i met penny i said to her you know i just explained to her why i felt that way and she had no problem with it so our rule was as long as we love each other and we want to be together and work through life's challenges together, then we stay together. Mm-hmm. But the day that we don't feel that we're in the right place with the right person, let's not drag each other through the coals and make it painful. Let's allow each other to go find the person that can help us fulfill the needs that we have at that time. Our rule was do what you need to do to feel whole, but protect each other, you know, be careful not to have sex with just anybody because neither of us wants to get a sexually transmitted disease, but don't leave booby traps laying around. So all of a sudden people are running up saying, oh, your wife's having an affair or your husband's having an affair. And it becomes a big shock because then it kills the honesty and the intimacy of the relationship. So I was able to, one, set my dream. My dream is to have a partner that loves me enough to let me be intimate with other people because it's just who I am. And my dream is to have a partner that I can offer that to as well. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, you'd have to get lucky for that. I say, no, you don't have to get lucky. You just have to get clear mm-hmm. and use the powers of your own ability to manifest, which means focus your consciousness on what you want, not what you don't want, and become that person. A lot of people want to have relationships like that where they have freedom, but they don't want to give it to their partner. 
And that's one of the biggest things I find when I counsel men with these issues. They want to have lots of sex, but they don't want their partner to have sex with anybody else. And I said, well, you're still just a child, really. You haven't grown up enough. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know, you got to be able to give what you're asking for, too, or you're just going to create huge conflict in your relationships. And you're not mature enough to handle a relationship like that until you can give what you're asking for. My point being is that I was fortunate enough to be honest with myself and to trust the universe, that type of love is so full and so rich. And I actually found myself growing out of it once I met Angie, where previously I had many lovers at different times. And you know, I traveled all over the world and sometimes I had, you know, someone I would meet in Sydney and and Penny would be there and I'd say, Do you mind if I go spend the evening with so and so? No, go ahead. After many years of that type of living, I found that the complication of getting involved in so many relationships was what was stressful to me. Not the sex, but my mom's sick. Can I borrow some money? Can, you know, and having to listen to everybody's problems. Well, when you got five partners that you're intimate, that's a lot of phone calls and texts, and it's a lot of people asking you for things. And it just, I found it actually. There was a period in my growth and development where it was flowering for me and nourishing and and fulfilling. And I felt like, finally, I'm getting to really live without all the stigmas and all the childhood religious programming getting in the way. And then I found that when I met Angie and we started engaging each other intimately, that something switched inside of me. Where mm. And a lot of it has to do with her because I became so sexually fulfilled and so spiritually fulfilled. I mean, she's a shaman, she's an artist, and she has not only many of the same interests as me, but in many ways is deeper than me in, in several different areas. So I found someone that that was so full, mm. so like my my I remember the day that I thought, why do why does a part of me want to keep having sex with other women when I have two people in my life that are so complete that you're, it's kind of like you just bought a new car, but you're still shopping for a new car and you haven't even <laughs> driven your car yet. And so that's what ultimately led me to proposing to Penny and Angie that maybe we just keep this to ourselves and I will, well, you know, mostly me at the time and, and Angie, because Angie also had a very <laughs> vital sex life. And um, we just had all reached the point where we were ready for our own form of monogamy that includes the three of us. Mm -hmm. I, I really feel good about it. I've had many chances and, and could easily pick up the phone and in 10 minutes have people that I know that would love to come have sex with, with one of us, both of us, all of us. But I don't, I feel as though I've, I've so fully satiated that, that I don't have a craving for it anymore. And it really brought me to a point where I feel I grew past something I had to experience but because of that growth, now I'm really embracing the depth of the penetration of the intimacy and the challenges that life brings in marriage with these two women. And there's so much you learn when you have two partners like that, two wives, and they learn a lot from each other. And they don't have a sexual relationship, but their relationship's very intimate and very deep. They both mother our children. They both manage our finances. We all work for the same objectives. We all put our money in the same pot. We're all sharing love and life at the deepest levels. We know everything about each other, you know, at least 
in metaphor, right? There's no secrets that we hold from each other. And I feel like I was able to grow through one stage into another stage that I would consider consider as mature love. You know, there's puppy love, there's romantic love, and then when I call mature love, and I feel like I got my romantic stuff out of me with all the partners, and so did Angie, and then we merged into this form of mature love, and I feel more whole than I've ever felt in my whole life. Mm -hmm. I feel more complete. I don't have that burning urge like I did for a lot of my life as an alpha male full of testosterone that I'm constantly hunting. Even when I'm half asleep, I still got one eye open looking for the next great adventure. I feel like, um, what's his name? Um, Indiana Jones has been into enough caves and (laughs) rescued enough treasure that he says, okay, there's enough. I don't need to keep doing that now. I got to let the dead people stay dead. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I've heard you talk about your relationship before, but I've never heard you say it. And maybe it's also just sitting here with you, but it's really beautifully described and also just emanates from you as you speak about it, you know, like I can feel the truth. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really lovely. And I think one of the things is, you know, people find that kind of uh, uh, authenticity or integrity or whatever word we want to use that in themselves in all different kinds of relationships. And people are so uh, often blocked on allowing themselves to move with what is presented, you know, move with what God has presented, with what your desires have presented, whatever. And so you have all kinds of horrible fallouts from that. Like you could be dating somebody and really like them, but have stuck in your head, well, I can only date this one person, but there's this other person I like, and there are these other people I want to have sex with, so I guess I have to leave this person. Mm -hmm. But in fact... And, and never have that conversation with the person you're dating. Yes. You could just have that conversation and see what comes out of That's it, out of the freedom. That's fear of rejection. Totally. Yes. And uh, the inability to allow the freedom of the other, right? Yes. It's like, right? And we should be encouraging. And so, you know, it sounds to me like there's this part of this conversation that's happening between the three of you where you're all like, what what brings us closer? What behaviors, what actions, which ways of relating bring us closer? And that started with Penny. It's like, how do, can actually doing this, having this relationship form will bring us closer. And then Angie appears and it's like, okay, so this brings us closer. This puts us into this kind of deep relationship with each other. And people are called in all different ways to have all different kinds of relationships. And we should be open to them. And yes. some people, some people, because sometimes I hear, you're not doing this, but sometimes I hear people talk about, oh, well, I was open and I really let myself do it, but now I found monogamy and now I'm just with this one person, right? And I hear the kind of ennobling of the turn there, mm-hmm. do you know? And I, and again, I don't think you're doing this. Well, first of all, you have two wives, so I know that you're, <laughs> you're not doing this. But, but I want to say some people are called to never have a partner. Some people are called to have multiple sex partners throughout their lives. Some people are called to have uh, polyamorous relationships. Some people are called to have these uh, three, three people relationships, whatever it is, but we don't, we don't allow ourselves to be fluid. And, and even I would say, can we allow ourselves to be fluid in the day, in the week or the month? I mean, that's something I would say with my partners. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't know that I'm going to be monogamous with you throughout this whole relationship, but do you need monogamy this week? Let's see how that goes. And let's talk about it at the end of the week. Do you need monogamy today? Maybe I need this today. And there's a sense of mutuality there. Mm -hmm. So sometimes 
we also get hung up on this, what's good for the goose is good for the gander kind of thing. It is really important to offer to the other what you want yourself. Mm-hmm. But sometimes those needs don't look the same. No, so, they right? don't. But so I, that's why I call yeah. it a mutuality yeah, rather than the same be, standard. It's you like, have to maintain the same standard. But it, Well, no, I would say not the same standard exactly, but I would say the, um, there's, a mutu- there's a mutuality. Exactly. There's moral an, standard. Yes, exactly. There's a moral and sort of ethical framework mm-hmm. from which you both agree to stand in. Yes. Not necessarily, well, you can have sex with anybody, so I get to have sex with anybody. It's like, maybe both people don't want to have sex with lots of people. Maybe one is like, look, um, there's this one or two like old fuck buddies that I want to be able to mess around with, mm-hmm. but you go ahead and do what you want with whoever you want. Mm-hmm. And or, that fulfills or both. Or don't want to. Exactly. So, so it doesn't always have to look the same. It just has to have the same uh, coherence of feeling and respect. I think that the the stated agreements have to be honored. Yes, exactly. That, that's the thing. And a lot of people are just too insecure to state to mm-hmm. their partner what their dream is for fear of rejection. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of this, as you know, all a huge percentage of all this goes right back to religious programming mm-hmm. and all these things. But what people don't realize is that all these religious ideologies are there for a reason. Jung said religion, the function of religion is to protect you from the direct experience of God, which said another way, the function of religion is to create a field of tensions that guarantees you're going to build a mind and you're going to have to learn to work with your own mind or it's going to destroy you. And that's that can be seen in the structure stages of consciousness. As people evolve in their consciousness, they go from fundamentalist religious ideas where it's totally ethnocentric, my group against your group, my religion is right and yours is wrong, to world-centric, where the person now begins to crave to know, well, what is Buddha's perspective on sex, or what is Buddha's perspective on drugs, or on life, or on money, to what is Krishna's perspective on it? And then once they get a little taste, they go, wow, their world is getting bigger, and they realize that there's more ways of living and more ways of relating. And oh, by the way, it can't be that sinful because there's an entire culture of people on the other side of the world that live this way. And if it was really against what God wanted, then that wouldn't be happening, Mm. right? But it takes growth of the soul and the mind to get to the point where you're intelligent enough to think with enough abstraction to look out of the box that you were came in. But the point I'm making is the religious programming creates narrow confines that are sort of like the egg that's around a chicken. And if the chicken doesn't develop the strength to break its own egg, it's not going to survive in nature. So in order to create the forces to bring us from a state of pure unconsciousness into the state of consciousness, we need these bars on the cage that religion provides so well. And as we mature, we realize those bars are actually invisible because they were agreed upon. Meaning, I was raised in a Christian family, and so these bars seem very solid. But it's only because I agree to participate in that belief system that those bars are solid. But once I start reading Tantra or reading Hinduism or the songs of Saraha or many other great things, you realize, oh, wow, not everybody has the same cage that I do. In fact, a lot of people have figured out that the cage is an illusion. <laughs> and they're, <laughs> the difference between them and me is they're happy. <laughs> and they're having a lot more experience. And the menu is a lot bigger for them. And so you see, you go from this eye-centric orientation of the child to the ethnocentric orientation of the group to the world-centric realization of what God says yes to around the world, and it's many, many different colors and forms, to 
the greater graduation, which realizing you're a citizen of a cosmos, then that your body really isn't even who you are, and it's not even the location you're in. In fact, if you pay attention to how often your mind is wandering when you're trying to listen to a radio program or a <laughs> CD in your car, you're not even bound to this dimension. Right, oh, totally. So you become <laughs> aware that, wow, I'm actually a citizen of a cosmos, and if you get good at astral travel, you can have sex with beings and in other dimensions. <laughs> and uh, apparently there's no restriction against that in Catholicism. Or, or your monogamous relationship. Rarely does your partner say you can't have sex with an alien. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I want to say, you know, to the religious programming, we should just witness the way in which the the prohibition of sex moves into all these different areas of life and different um, superstructures. And the reason why I'm saying this is people sometimes think that once they've kind of deprogrammed that religious wound or whatever, that they've got it, they've got it down. Oh, they don't believe. But actually, you know, there's this phony neuroscience brain mapping that says, oh, when you jerk off to porn, this lights up on our neural map, and that means that it's a problem for you, even though it's the same one that lights up when you play tennis or whatever. <laughs> you know, or that, or you know, well, like, you know, Freud would say a tennis racket's a phallus. Yeah, right, 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 exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you're not really a, playing but, tennis; you're just masturbating <laughs> in a way that's okay for your Christian uh, overlord. Totally. I mean, that explains a lot of sports. But the, but the, but the idea, you know, that also in say socialism, where there's a kind of austere relationship in leftist socialism to sexuality, or there's a relationship in capitalism to a hyper. A, a state of hyper arousal that's never consummated, right? That's a way in which sex gets uh, sort of shamed or regulated as well. Give me an example or, of that. One. Okay, here's a great one. You dipping so, your penis in cocaine? Yeah, no, no, because no. you have the money. No, well, that oh, I've not tried that one yet, so let's see how that goes. <laughs> but no, I'm talking actually about the state of hyper arousal. So people say sex sells all the time, right? They yeah. say sex sells, but actually, sex doesn't sell except pornography. What sells is frustrated desire. So you show a billboard yes. of a, a beer, like a beer ad, it's not like a dick and a pussy like together saying Budweiser, yeah. right? That would be sex sells. What it is, is it's some, you know, someone in a bathing suit sitting on a beach and someone else looking at her holding a beer like it's his dick. And then it's Budweiser, which is we hyper arouse you and then we divert the consummation into the buying of the product. Yes. So that's not sex sells. That's a hyper arousal state that yes. sells. And that's how capitalism then, it says, don't have sex, buy shit. What sells is the illusion of the capacity to meet an unfulfilled need. Yes, exactly. With with an object that we are, by the way, going to make money off of, right? Which at least, becomes the symbol. At least pornography is fucking honest. Like, at yeah. least it's like, look, here's a representation of the consummation of the relationship. You're watching this. You're being aroused. You come. The end. It's over. And yeah. usually that doesn't last that long either. So, like, no. in, so, in some ways. So, anyway, I'm just saying there are lots of ways in which a kind of sex negativity or sex shaming moves that even if you undo the religious stuff, yeah. you have all these other things. And that's why, like, sexual liberation, when people talk about well, it... because atheists have these problems, too. Oh, totally. They yeah. told. I mean, sometimes the, <laughs> sometimes the worst. And then, then they don't have any spiritual tools to, like, apprehend it yeah. with or get, get rid of it. So when you are a sexually liberated person, 
no one's ever truly sexually liberated because the negativity and the different ways of it are always coming at you. So you have to undo the knot every single day. I mean, you always have to, it's a constant undoing process because then say- Well, we're all part of a a culture yes, and we're all tapped into the collective unconscious, which is mostly full of guilt and shame around sex. Yes, and it, and that culture and the ways that it exhibits and symbolizes and signifies guilt and shame around sex are finding new ways to sell that to you. Of course, new ways it's to highly profitable. Right, so you have to... Com- On both sides, yes. selling it to you and dealing with the consequences yeah. of engaging it. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, so, you know, I've looked into these issues and one huh. of the things you find with a lot of these big corporations, I remember once the ecologist published a, an article looking into the board of directors of RJ Reynolds and several other companies and it showed something very telling. People that own cigarette manufacturing corporations not only invested in the disease, but they invested in all the stop smoking programs, stop smoking drugs and gums and all that stuff. People that owned companies that produced alcohol invested in Alcoholics Anonymous programs, get uh, alcohol treatment centers, and they invested in the disease as well. So Uh what they showed is most of these major corporations, they're investing in both sides of the investment so they can win no matter which way it goes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think we we should just, I want people who are hearing us talk today or maybe hearing me talk for the first time in from your audience, not hear me say that sexual liberation means just having sex with a lot of people or never being monogamous or whatever. There's this great I'm going to get the quote wrong, but um, by Wilhelm Reich, this quote, Wilhelm Reich was a student of Freud's who went even more sexual than Freud did. And, you know, if you've ever seen the video for Cloud Busting by Kate Bush, there's a whole uh, narrative about Wilhelm Reich creating these cloud busters and stuff. So you've you've maybe seen it before and he created uh, these orgone accumulators. Maybe we'll talk about that or not. But one of the things he basically said was every person who thinks they're sexually liberated should be haunted by this question, am I actually just sexually sophisticated? Uh. Because sometimes sexual liberation, what looks like sexual liberation is actually a trap for people as Mm. well. It's actually a way of repressing. So just like, (laughs) I mean, you could imagine someone who is like very quiet and meek or whatever, and they, they, they never talk, and someone teaches them how to scream for, for once in their life. But then they scream all the time. <laughs> it's like, well, that's just a different version of what you were doing before. It's, not, yeah. it's about being able to liberate yourself. So that, you know, that's a question for people to investigate. And when they do investigate that, am I sexually liberating or am I just like making uh, my sexual repression more sophisticated? Um, you know, don't- make, Which would be a compensation. Exactly. Uh, pay attention to the way ways in which you're absorbing the cultural messaging and pollutants and all that kind of stuff that would make you think that you're doing one instead of the other. You know, one thing, um, Jung said that all neurosis is an adaptative process. In other words, somebody with a neurosis is adapting to something they're having a hard time integrating. And I think there's a huge amount of neurosis that comes from all these issues of sex because think of all the insecurities involved and the shoulds and the shouldn'ts and the taboos and who's watching and what if we get caught and the long, long list of all that stuff. But then you stack that up against the power of the desire and the drive that's biologically innate in us. You could say it built into the soul to want to engage and explore. And you can see that because of the layers and layers of taboos and, and many people don't have enough trust and confidence in themselves to do, to stand the disconnection from parental approval and social approval. They're not mature enough as a soul or as an individual to stand on their own two feet. As Einstein said, all great minds are, are, uh, 
violently op- uh, all great minds meet violent opposition from mediocre minds. So if you're a great mind sexually, you're going to meet a lot of violent opposition from mediocre minds. So even if you can handle the sex, but you can't handle the repercussions of it, then the part of you that's having sex is having a, an adaptative crisis with what's going to happen to me if this gets out. What's going to happen if my so-and-so finds out, my parents, my friends, my whoever. And if a person really has a strong sex drive, but they don't have enough development of the ego to stand as an individual, then they can go into a, a, a pretty comprehensive state of neurosis or even have multiple neurotic tendencies, not realizing that that's a coping mechanism that they're using to um, try to survive. Well, Connor, we have had a very honest, open exploration of sex, and I'm sure that's a, you know, a bottomless topic. But before we close out the podcast, what else is something that you feel is a real important issue in the world today that we need to bring more awareness to? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, more and more in my life, I've been moving towards trying to make my conversations and my podcast and what I do focus on walking away from the model of materialism that we're locked into. <clears throat> We've talked about this in various ways here, but I don't think that people quite, sometimes I think that people don't quite understand what that means. And I, I certainly, that's been an evolving question in my life. So they're, you know, I'm still learning what that means to walk away from materialism. I think people, when they listen to, again, maybe not you, but some other people in alternative or quote unquote alternative health circles think like, Oh, well, I don't want Western medicine, so I'll just use vitamins instead. Or I, you know, I'll go get acupuncture and then they'll tell me how to deal with the cold that I have or the kidney disease or whatever. But they're still all using the same model and system, which is I find physical thing, I give physical response to it. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's one example of how I think we get sort of trapped into materialism, but it goes even deeper. It's like when people are clairvoyant, for example, mm-hmm. people claim clairvoyance as a way that's not materialistic. But in fact, if when you're clairvoyant, you're seeing images <laughs> of say, oh, uh, I'm clairvoyant and I'm helping somebody who lost their keys. Oh, I see your keys on the table there. You left them on the table underneath that thing, go get them. While the faculty that's at work is not necessarily materialistic, you're still seeing materialistic pictures. You're Mm -hmm. still seeing pictures of objects. Mm -hmm. What would it mean if we move away from that, if we start moving away and we do the kinds of development we need to move away from that and into an understanding that the world is made up of evolving states of being, of beings themselves, of entities that are not materialistic. And that's, I think, pretty complicated. And so, one of the challenges right now with everything that's going on in the world at the time that we're recording this um, mm-hmm. is that even when people have really deep analyses of what's going on on a materialistic level, these corporations control this, these states control this, there's the deep state and the, there's this and this, that ends up being too materialistic for me. It, I mean, I sometimes think well, it's great that people have these analyses that aren't just the completely shallow analysis that everything is as it seems. We're everything that we're being told by governments and corporations, and you know, whatever whatever side you might want to be on that. Whether you're an anti-masker or you're a total, uh, you know, neighborhood snitch who's calling the government because <laughs> someone's leaving two times their house two times a day or whatever. So, what I'm trying to point to is that we, in a time like this. We tend to sink into something that appears to be a deeper 
explanation, but a lot of times that ends up just being materialistic. And so it has the same gesture, even though the field of information is different and wider. That's, that's a, a lot because hand in hand with materialism is reductionism. So, mm-hmm. you know, since the scientific revolution, most people's um, education and way of relating has been driven by reductionist concepts. If you want to know how something works, you take it to pieces. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, if you take hydrogen and um, oxygen apart, you miss wetness, but you have uh, hydrogen and oxygen. So there's something emergent that's um, indescribable by a material means alone. From what I'm picking up, just hearing your expression, it's, and a lot of the Greek philosophers spoke about this. I know, you know, Socrates and um, others spoke of the essence and Plato spoke of archetypes and and that you you can't know a thing by its thingness. You have to go beneath it. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh says when you're looking at a flower, you're not looking at something that is flower in and of itself. You're looking at earth, water, fire, and air expressing itself in its flowerness. But the essence of what creates the flower is beyond the flower that you see as an object in front of you. And I think that's really the true nature of both religion, if it's practiced as religion, and spirituality. Uh, my favorite definition of spirituality is uh, it's the practice of connecting to a greater whole. So if you're looking for what, you know, you and I talked about the third, or when two or more get together in my name, I will be there, as Christ said, that's beyond a material reality. The, the you know, the friendship that we have isn't a tangible thing that you can weigh, but it's something that's very alive and very vital. And enriching enough to bring us together and have an interest in what we can share with each other. And I think, you know, if you look, for example, with the whole COVID thing, with all the segregation, the segregation is decreasing people's ability to connect with the essence of a person because they're conditioned to believe that you can only do that if you're with the person. So, for example, the increased rates in suicide and and domestic violence and anxiety and depression wouldn't be nearly as high if people had developed a depth of spiritual awareness where they realize they can connect to any being dead, as we call them here, or alive by just accessing them through their soul, which is essentially God consciousness within. I work with people on the other side all the time, and I have regular situations where I'm coaching people that are having... um, adaptation challenge or or transition challenge because somebody that they love has died, but they don't realize that person's standing right next to them Mm -hmm. constantly trying to let them know they're okay. So there you see, because that person has only got a concept of the existence of the other in a physical form, that's materialism. But what's behind that is what the great philosophers referred to as essence, or you could call it soul and spirit. And I think if people the time and had the training of which there's plenty available today to spend more time working with themselves, be it meditation, astral travel, um, you know, active imagination is, is Jung's concept that's also a great way to get past the materialist relationship, um, working with in developing one's intuition. And I also think that we are suffering from a real lack of the freedom and the comfort with our own creativity. Um, I've got a great book called The Art Spirit by Henry Miller, and he says something very beautiful. He says, when you're creating a piece of art, you're adding life to life, and that's when you're going beyond the materialistic realm. When you're dancing out of joy and singing out of joy and making love out of joy 
or working in your garden out of joy, not because you're counting how many tomatoes you're going to get, but just because you love engaging the beings that live in the soil and that make up the plants and, and the, the um, web of life to engage that, be barefooted in the dirt, then you're actually going beyond the materialistic aspects of being a gardener into the spiritual aspects of realizing that you're caring for living beings and that how you engage them. For example, during the First and Second World Wars, when the grand majority of men that ran farms had to go to war and women took the farms over, research showed very conclusively that productivity on the farms went up significantly. And the conclusion was is because women give more care to plants and animals. They actually engage them as living beings, not as objects. And there's countless experiments showing what happens when people, for example, love one plant but ignore another plant. So if a person only sees the plant as an object, then they just think of it like a decoration. It might as well be made of plastic. Their relationship wouldn't change with it. But I kiss my plants. I stroke my plants. And I take my kids around the house quite often, most evenings. And we kiss uh, many plants just to say, I love you. And thank you for sharing love and life with us. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that if people found more fulfillment and satiation through the joy of relationship and the joy of spirit, to me, the bookshelves are alive, the floor alive. I, I give thanks to this beautiful home. I call this one Rainbow Two and the Big House Rainbow One. But, you know, one of the reasons this isn't near as wild as a lot of people think of it is, is because if you say, okay, what is the source of consciousness? Well, we couldn't be conscious if God wasn't conscious or source wasn't conscious. You can't have a property in existence that doesn't already exist in potentia or potential. So if if we have the potential to be conscious, then God has to have the quality of consciousness. If we have the potential to feel and know where our lover is at because of the intuitive bond of union, then God has the potential to know where all of itself is because of the intuitive bond of being our progenitor. So if we say, okay, I love my house or my car, not as an object, but as a being that is an expression, because matter cannot organize itself. Therefore, if someone has a car, it's something that was organized by someone's psyche, someone's consciousness. Therefore, if we say, well, the planet has a shape, stars have functions, some intelligence is organizing that. So if you look at cosmology, stars are looked at as material objects that are like furnaces that burn. But if you read Steiner and what he says about stars, for example, he gives you a very spiritual description. And many metaphysical texts or books on the afterlife, including Steiner, talk about how when we die, we go to different planetary spheres to do different levels of processing, and that the most evolved beings live in the sphere of the sun. For example, if I want to talk to to Rumi, when I ask my soul to take me to Rumi so I can meet with him, very frequently I'm at the sun. Mm. And so... um, my relationship with the sun is is anything but material. Mm-hmm. My relationship with the sun is that it's a very powerful being whose love enlivens us, enriches us, and influences and informs the material existence. No sun, no plants, no trees, no animals, no life. So you could say the sun is really very um, intimately involved with the um, creative intelligence. The sun is often considered to be a logos in and of itself. All major stars, or all, most all stars, are considered to be a logos. The galaxy is a logos, and then the universe would be the the largest expression of logos. And I think that you know another way to describe this is if you think language. 
Someone can say, I love you, and not mean that they love you at all. Someone can say, fuck you, and actually be saying in a way that means I love you. You know, like, <laughs> you know, um, someone says, uh, you know, let's party tonight. And they go, oh, fuck you, man. <laughs> and, and really what they're saying is, yeah, I'll see you there. You didn't even have to ask, <laughs> right? And so there we're going into a dimension of connection that is beyond the body. You know, we don't say, hey, bring your body to my party tonight. <laughs> we might say, come to my party night and bring 12 beers or something. But that, that is what materialistic science wants us to say, which, of course is, which is interesting. I mean, just like, oh, well, you're in love. It's just these chemicals happening in this process and blah, 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 blah. That's the that's reductionism. <laughs> Not to, I don't want to veer back into the sex stuff too much, but whenever people say porn is objectifying, I'm like, look at science. That's the most objectifying force in the world. What are you yeah. talking about? Yeah. That reduces even love into objects and matter yeah. emotions. So what do you, what do you mean? but the but the thing about all this is it it is all it's it, it is all alive or we can meet it all as a being or a presence a, anything but the question then after that is how is it alive who is it how do we engage all that kind of stuff so you know you have people that can have spiritual materialism where they go and worship a tree it's great it's better to worship the tree than to ignore the tree or yes. to pretend it's not there mm -hmm. but then just to reify like tree as we know it and we see it as the actual being then ignores the things you're talking about where it's like the formative forces the nexus of the forces that come together to meet in that tree and the actual being that arises out of and, and inheres in the coming together and the commingling of those forces mm -hmm. so it's a question question of first you know yes it's alive these are here these are the, these are here i recognize that there's a kind of personhood almost in in these and then ha but how how what do i interact with and what do i see because again materialism is so tricky because it's part of the evolution of consciousness that we had to go through and that separation yes it, it and it needed to happen because when we add the intention to overcome it to it then we add something to the universe we add something to the cosmos mm -hmm. and so what when we do that in the way that doesn't just pull us back into it something new happens so i you know in some ways i find it harder and harder to explain myself and what I'm sensing and experiencing to people. Like a lot of my time is now spent simply trying to articulate what I'm going through to mm -hmm. others. You know, yeah. Um, I had my academic advisor was, you know, sort of talking to me about having a body and how that works for academic disciplines and how to do this and this and this method. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not experiencing what you're talking about. And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, <laughs> okay, I walked through the park. You know, even that already is beyond sometimes what I'm experiencing, which is not a walk, but a altering fluctuations of consciousness in different areas and spatiality. But then I end up in this spot. I'm looking at the grass, this path through the grass, and I see these mushrooms. And I just look at them, and suddenly the whole world starts like pulsing. Mm -hmm. And there's like a tremor there. And I'm like, oh, there's something that's meant to happen in this area, and I'm meant to engage with it. So on and so forth. I don't need to go all the way down the rabbit hole of what happened with that. But that's very hard to explain to people. It's very hard to explain um, in, in a way that's meaningful or articulate to people. It's in the same way that it's very hard to explain when people are like talking about their spiritual experiences mm -hmm. and spiritual development, they're like, well, you reach a point where you just know. What the fuck does that mean, right? <laughs> like, what, When I would hear people say that before, I'd be like, okay, do I just know? Do I just think I know? What's happening? All that. So what I'm trying to say now, and even as I'm speaking now, I'm having some difficulty articulating it, but trying to articulate 
a non-materialistic worldview using the same dimension of language that we're in right now, mm -hmm. which is based at this point on sensory input and sensory understanding and sensual understanding is very difficult. Well, and that, so, that points to a problem because you see language is a descriptive vehicle in which we talk about. Mm -hmm. I tell people talking about God never really gets you to the experience of God because the word about itself means to go around something, right? It does. It's not a penetrating thing. Like I can tell you all about how great um, a Mozart symphony is, but if you've never experienced it yourself, then really now you're trying to imagine Mozart's symphony as a thing, like I'm talking about a car or a piece of jewelry. And so we don't really have a vehicle in our construct of language to penetrate what I'm calling the essence, the spirit, or the soul of something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the real problem with materialism is because between materialism as a general concept and scientific materialism, which is, you know, the other side of the coin of reductionism, everything that exists from that mindset is just a collection of parts. And those people think that consciousness is a um, is an emergent property of the brain. But there's, as, as you know, there's a lot of questions that you can't answer that. Like, how can I remote view then? Because my brain's here and I'm, you know, on the other side of the universe kind of thing. And I'm picking up information that I can verify through remote viewing, which remote viewers have been shown to do, you know, so many times there's volumes of written, books written about it. So the the um, wh what I'm feeling from you is that what you're trying to describe is that part of what we're hung up on is the need to have a relationship with things, and all those things are actually products that we're extracting from the planet, which is killing the planet because the essence that makes those things has a gestation cycle. Right? If you're a fish farmer, but you're taking more fish out of the pen than the fish can reproduce, you end up with no fish. And therefore, if you're a spiritual fish farmer, then you know how important it is to give the fish as beautiful a life as you can and not take more than they can reproduce so that essentially everybody's getting, shall we say, an equal opportunity to experience life. And then there's a relationship with something other than the fish as a thing, but of, but of the fish as a, a being and of the fish as part of the great chain of being and part of the creative impulse of the universe or spirit or God. So I think if we start realizing that objects are not just objects, mm -hmm. they're manifestations of energy and information, and that the energy and the information that makes the object also makes our psyche. Mm -hmm. And so, interestingly, you can't engage anything material without a psyche, but you cannot objectify the psyche. When you're making love to somebody and you have an intimate experience of bond, bonding with them, a, a, a disillusion of one's own ego, the experience you have can't be tracked down to their physical body because it's actually the experience of engaging another soul. So, you know, Steiner taught that anything that has an inside and an outside has a soul, including an atom. So, in Steiner's model, you have the mineral soul, which emerges into the biological soul, which emerges into the electric, uh, intellectual soul, which merges into the awareness soul, which merges into the creative soul, which then becomes the intuitive soul, which culminates in spirit-soul union, or the complete realization as a visceral experience that you are all of that undeniable experience. Um, but I think that 
materialism takes the soul out of the atom. Materialism takes the soul out of biological life. Materialism even takes the soul out of our intellectual life, which is where our ego is formed, because mm-hmm. the ego is really an ideaplex. And materialism um, doesn't really make room for an awareness soul, because the function of the awareness soul is to ask, is it really true? Mm-hmm. Is there something I'm missing here? Because only then do you begin to develop your own mind outside the context of your egoic po- programming. Mm-hmm. And, and then if you only live in the material realm, creativity is limited to material objects. In other words, one of us is painting the materialist, and the other one is adding life to life. To Mm -hmm. one, it's just a painting. To other, it's an expression of something inside of them that cannot be captured, but somehow Mm -hmm. moves a paintbrush. And that does make a difference. And people should understand that even if the two people are standing next to each other painting the same thing, the inner gesture is actually making a difference in the world, you know, Mm -hmm. even though the two people might produce the same exact painting. There's that great... um, story by Borges, the Argentine uh, fiction writer called, uh, I think, Pierre Menard, the author of the um, of the Quixote, which is this guy ends up writing Don Quixote completely, like, you know, years later, obviously, completely ends up rewriting the entire thing word for word, even though he's had completely different experiences and arrives at it in a different way. It's a really fascinating story. It's a, it's a total mindfuck. But, and also, I'm thinking about, you know, when you're saying, is it true, do I know this? Is this true? That's one of the things that the work of Byron Katie is so profound at describing because, you know, if people know her system, she asks, is it true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? Uh, who can, would you be without that thought? Can you turn it around? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Can you turn around? I'm missing one of them. Is it true? Can you absolutely say that's true? Anyway. But the point being, what she's doing there through her process is separating thinking from feeling. And that's one of the basic spiritual exercises and strengthening things that we need to be able to do, not because they need to be separate totally or that they need to be completely segregated, but rather so they're strengthened on their own so they can interact with each other in a healthy way. So you don't just have your feelings leading your thoughts. And a lot of our feelings and a lot of our sense percepts are so densified that we end up thinking that objects are real things. We've reified all of that and we need to be able to ask, you know, the most basic Barry Katie question, like, it's a table, is that true? And then suddenly you can start tearing apart matter. So I think everybody that goes and looks at her stuff finds a you know, finds a really good system to begin to apprehend the spiritual presence of the world and the way the world is constituted by spiritual beings. But also I want to say, you know, this very complicated thing where everything that comes into us, um, it has to be destroyed and overcome. So that includes sense perceptions. Let me explain food, since I know a lot of people are uh, tuned into nutrition and stuff that listen to this show. Um, In fact, you have the book, right? There, the dynamics of nutrition that goes yeah, into this. I, I know a little exactly bit. what you're referring to already. I'm so, just letting you yeah. tell your story. <laughs> so we think that, at, by and large, when we eat food, like you are what you eat. It compose you eat these sorts of substances, and they compose your body in this way. But in fact, the occult view of it, which I think is correct. All food is poison, and you put poison into your body, and the forces that rise up in you, the spiritual forces, 
the forces of your actual being that rise up to overcome the poison are what constitute you. So you're built out of the forces of overcoming and completely obliterating this thing that you've put into your body. The interesting thing is one of the ways you can see that is that some things that you put into your body are much harder to overcome than others, and many Mm. don't have the spiritual forces to be able to overcome that and therefore can't develop. So white sugar is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. It's not really food. You just put it in, it's a pollutant, and you haven't developed to the point to be able, many of us haven't, to... I sure haven't, to develop the forces to overcome that when it comes into you. So that's just one basic example. What people say is you put food in your body and it breaks down and it's never destroyed. Matter is never really destroyed. But actually what happens is you do completely in the human being overcome it with the forces that are in you. And those forces build you, not the food itself. And so that's the same thing with sense perception. When you're looking at something, the world is dying into you. It dies into you, and as your formative forces overcome it, you grow and spiritually develop as a person. This is why certain people can see the world in a completely different way after developing spiritually over another. They've already encountered and overcome that death process of the world falling into them, if that makes sense. Mm, Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it'll be hard to follow. (laughs) Um, You know, a couple points. I think Steiner somewhere gives the example um, to, to sort of fortify what you're saying. He says... The reason that you can eat lamb for a year and not turn into a lamb is because your spirit has to annihilate Mm -hmm. the idea of the sheep or the lamb, or you will start becoming lamb. And so, you know, that relates to multiple functions, such as immune system function, hydrochloric acid function, enzyme function. But ultimately, digestion has to break whatever the food you're you're eating down into the component building blocks that all plants and animals are created, which are carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Just like everything's made of atoms, everything in the food world is made of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins in some different combination thereof. But if you eat a piece of lamb, you're not eating um, human flesh. And even if you were eating human flesh, it's not compatible with your own because it doesn't have a genetic matchup, blood matchup, and all sorts of other things. And because everything actually is spiritual, it has a spiritual force in it. And that force basically is directing the construct of the idea. So when you're eating a lamb, you're eating something that is phase locked to the spirit of the lamb or the archetype of the lamb. And the spirit of the idea of the lamb moves into form and manifests as the lamb. So in Steiner's description, he's saying that if we don't have the spiritual energy in us to disembody the piece of lamb to the point that it is no longer congruent with and connecting to the spiritual force that once made it a lamb, then we end up having the challenges of a lamb trying to make it into our body. And lo and behold, (laughs) what do we have? Massive, massive problems with people having immune reactions to food. Mm -hmm. And when people get themselves healthy and do adequate breathing movement and minimize unnecessary stressors on their body, like just getting to bed on time, drinking water, um, doing things you love to do instead of telling people how shitty your life is because you have to do things, then all of a sudden you see people that had all sorts of food allergies and reactions to all sorts of stuff don't have them anymore. <laughs> because, you know, you, you could say, well, they've rested and their biochemistry is better, but you could also say it's because there's more life force in them. There's more, they're, they've got more um, spirit or better access to their own soul forces because they're not investing on all that energy into defense mechanisms. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting the way you just put that, because I think what people do, they'll always, <laughs> because we're so conditioned to, we'll always try to worm out and figure out the materialistic excuse for like what's being said, like, oh, yeah, but people are just getting better sleep, and they're drinking more water, and whether, as if that's not just a placeholder for what's really going on. You've just kicked the can down the road as to what you have to explain, yes. and what you have to understand. And so one of the easiest ways I get people to like... <laughs> deal with this is just to look into their own experience and be like, okay, your experience is really, really weird. If you sit right now, if wh- whoever you are listening to this, I want you to just think about the fact that you can't see your own fate. Mm-hmm. That will fuck you up for days if you really like go into it. Think about the fact that everything in the world is apprehending you in a way that you can never once ever apprehend yourself. So the entire world is making up your being right now. It's making up, and sure, you can look Which in a mirror. Which is why people love the mirror. Right. You can look in a mirror, right? But it's never going to give you that three-dimensional, multi-sided no. version of yourself that interacts with light and space and all that kind of stuff in the same way. So just if you just do that now, because mostly we take for granted that we can see our own face which is so strange. So I can do that. I used to be able to do that. That would be the switch for me to turn into an altered state of consciousness. And I think it can happen for a lot of people. If you just sort of focus on that long enough, it'll mess you up. But you can do that with any aspect of your experience. So if you find yourself saying, yeah, but Paul, like, sure, like they're just getting more sleep. So that's why they're having this experience. Okay, well, what is sleep? What's happening when you sleep? That's What's what, going on? What there? I was going to say is so just drive deeper into the experience. Go there yeah, to, to really get to know what's going on. Because most people think of sleep as unconsciousness, and it is on a material level or on a brain level. But it's also mm-hmm. wise to remember that what we call the unconscious is managing thirty billion billion biochemical reactions a second, making you breathe, digesting, metabolizing, assimilating, <laughs> eliminating, circulating, healing, and things that are so far beyond our conscious capacity. That as Nassim Harriman says, we we really should have named the conscious the unconscious, and the unconscious should be the conscious. <laughs> right. Well, like when people are like, does God exist? I'm like, no, no. The question is, does matter exist? That's what you should be asking. Yes. So that's that's a different question. But but the sleep thing is like it's so brilliant too because when people talk about their dreams and they're just like, you know, they say things like, oh, so I was in the dream and I saw the lamppost and then I was like hugging my friend and I heard her say, I'm like, no, you fucking didn't. What do you mean? You weren't using your sense of touch. You weren't using your sense of sight. You weren't using your sense of hearing. So what exactly is happening there? And might that not make you reevaluate what's happening with those senses and what you're calling your senses interacting with the world when you're awake? And that's a critical point, Connor, right there. Because you see, when you're in the dream world, no matter which way you want to go about it from a technical perspective of the speed of light or the spiritual perspective of the astral realm, you're actually engaging another being who you perceive as just as physical and real as you do when you're not dreaming. But the difference is you're in a light body or a spirit body Mm. and you're engaging another spirit. So the point that I'm making is you have, most people are aware that they can have dreams that are so vivid and so real and oftentimes so scary that when they wake up, it seems as though this is sleepy and this is the less real dimension. And the same thing happens with uh, psychedelic experiences or plant medicine ceremonies. I've had plenty of them to, you know, really make me question which reality is more real. And so that's getting closer to the essence. But there's a neat little interesting thing because this goes back to people uh, thinking that when you die, that's it, it's screened to black. And so what I say to them is, well, let me ask you a question. 
if I made a video game that had characters that played a specific game in it, whatever you want to call it, Pac-Man or whatever, and I could put you into the game as a character. So I infuse your consciousness into a character. We'll call it the Connor and Paul game. So we meet each other in the game. Would you be able to tell the difference between the experience of being in the game and the experience we have talking about it before we go into the game? And for all intensive purposes, the answer is no, for the same reason you can't tell whether you're dreaming or not when you're dreaming, because it's so real that it's actually even more real than our waking state. So one of the ways they describe God is God is a little boy that is a genius that loves to create things. And what he loves to do is create games. And God makes a deal with him or herself and says, I'm going to jump into this game, Mm -hmm. but I can't get out of it until I figure it out. (laughs) And I think that's what the world is. Mm -hmm. The world is a game of self-realization because ultimately all there is to self-realize is God. And God says, I'm going to enter into this material plane of existence in which I separate myself into a myriad of bodies that are called organisms, plants, animals, and humans. And I'm going to stay in the game until I realize the truth of myself, which means to win the game. And the moment that I realize the truth of myself, I will wake up from this dream we call the game of the world and realize who I was all along. Now, the, the, to go back to your point of why materialism is, is so challenging is because we keep falling deeper into the game. Mm. And in order to play the game, we keep on, on having to make more and more material stuff. So paradoxically, materialism and capitalism are both attempts to medicate the problems of our lives with money and objects neither of which touches the spirit that is having the growth experience that ultimately gets the most healing by realizing what's really going on and what it's really craving for, what it's really desiring, that has essence and has soul and has connection and has permanence. The question is, will we come to the truth of ourselves before we completely annihilate the planet looking for it unconsciously? Yeah, I mean, and I don't think... This will be, I think, challenging for some people. Uh, like, I don't think we will, I don't think we can annihilate the planet searching in the sense of... Well, we can only annihilate our ability to live on it. Well, it, and like the way I say it is like, it'll never be as easy as nuclear war. <laughs> because... Well, that's fast. The, the, that's a flash and, and then you're, you're in the astral plane. <laughs> well, right. And just, and just at, like that too, we have, right, we still have life, even if we blow it all up. Now changes and for we don't we don't want that but that's the materialist conditions of what we're going through and so if we eliminate those you know like how do i I describe our time because people often have this like clash between everything's perfect everything's fine versus we got to get on the ground we got to change things we got to spiritually develop we got to be spiritual warriors whatever and there's always like a conflict between those two and so the way i put that is like you know for our time right now our moment and all the challenges we're facing the way I say it rather dramatically is between now and the year 2033, we'll just put that year out there. People can look it up and find if they think that's an interesting date or not. <laughs> between now and the year 2033, are we going to get it right and do this certain things correctly? Or are we going to miss our opportunity and have a thousand years of suffering before we get it right? So it's it's not that it won't well, get we've right. Well, had. <laughs> well, right, but do we want... So it's not that we won't get it right sooner or later. We will because, because God wants us to go through these incarnations and push on what's available to himself recognizing or itself or herself recognizing and self-recognizing and going through those experiences. But will it be... 
<laughs> will it be a thousand years of pain or like th- 13 more years of like, you know, trying to tinker with it and get it right? <laughs> well, you know, that the, you know, the beauty of the mystery of life is that it is a mystery and nobody knows who's at the helm of the earth. It's scientifically speaking, flying through space at something like 68,000 miles an hour and nobody's driving. <laughs> We don't know where the universe is going. We don't know, ultimately, from a scientific perspective, what's driving the evolutionary forces, the creative forces. There's a lot of debates, and people like Steiner had a very good grasp on that. But to a lot of you know Western scientists, Steiner's just an idiot, right? And I think that's part of the mystery. And I, I really love the study of mythology because one of the key definitions of a myth is a story that tells itself. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no greater story than life itself, and it keeps telling itself. And it's been through world wars and catastrophes and asteroid strikes. And you know, on this planet, we've already had five great extinctions, and we're certainly in the sixth right now uh, with the way we're handling things. And so I think because it's a mystery, all we can really do is speculate. We can use common sense and logic. Like you don't need to be a genius to know if you consume the resources of nature faster than it can reproduce and you have to use those for your own physical vitality and and sustainability, then you're just going to bring your physical existence to an end, just Mm -hmm. like, you know, anyone that starves, starves because there's not enough to eat. But if it comes to the life of spirit, then this may all be an exercise to teach us who and what we really are and what really is meaningful in the process that the mystery is oriented towards, which for me is always, no matter how many times I meditate on it, it always just turns back to this one uh, fascinating word called love. I, I don't really think that there's anything going on in the universe other than the fact that it's a process of love. That's why I define love as the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self and or other. Because if the prime source of all of it is God, then the whole exercise has to be an exercise of God in a state of its own self-realization. If you think God is omnipresent, that would be the equivalent of a superconscious entity. Well, a superconscious entity can't really know anything about itself because it knows everything about itself. And the way I describe this to people is I ask them this question, if you knew everything there was to know in the universe, would you have any questions? And the answer is always no. Okay, what would you think about? Nothing. Well, if you don't think about anything and you have no questions, then that means you don't have any desires, and therefore there's really no impetus to live and explore. So the magic of God is that God is super conscious and unconscious, and in the middle is a material existence and an astral existence and a mental existence, all of which are are stages of awakening to what really God itself is in its own process, of which we are... expressions of that process and so i think that at the end of the day there's certain things that will remain mysteries because the only way you can answer them is to become one with god and when you do that there's nobody there to remember what happened <laughs> like the enlightenment scripture thing you were talking about yeah yeah right you'll yeah and i want to i want to pick up what you were saying a little earlier in that comment and uh add so um, so as someone who I myself s- struggled for years and years and years with suicidal depression, although that's mostly gone away now um, after I started encountering a dead person in meditative space. Um, but, but anyway, years and years of that, and one of the things that really stuck with me and one of the things that helped me not kill myself in that was this realization through spiritual understanding that if I killed myself, I wouldn't 
get out of it. Like I would just be removing the one thing that could help me move through uh, all the pain that I was feeling. So if I eliminate the body, then I'm just in the afterlife without a body that could help me develop to <laughs> like overcome, you know, all the stuff that was making me depressed, the life circumstances to take care of myself, to go through all the things that I needed. So I'd still be suffering, but I wouldn't have the means to help me get out of that suffering. And then eventually I'd reincarnate. This is the thing with this is the thing with love. And so it's like, we get a lot of chances, we get a lot of turns. And sometimes it takes a lot of lifetimes to get us through to that place where we, but just remember, you're your own child. When you die, you have this life between this life and the next. And then after that, you have your next life. So you're your own child. So take care of yourself and push towards being able to exude and radiate the presence of love. And sometimes that takes a lot of lifetimes. I'm sure for some people it just took a few, but I don't know any. <laughs> you yeah, know, no. I, you have to go through all of it. And and so, um, you know, on the one hand, well, actually, I'll just stop there because you had something to say. Yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say that very process is what gives love meaning. If that wasn't there, it would be no different than just thinking I'm a professional athlete or I'm a world record holder and I'm Olympian and it would happen. And so nobody would give a shit if you'd won the gold medal because all they'd have to do is dream it up themselves and there they would be on television and we'd all just be in each other's heads experiencing each other's fantasies and nobody would really know how to weight anything as more or less valuable. But when, when the process of learning to love, and I describe love in my model is you begin with sex and violence love where you have to learn the forces of the environment you're in. You're here on earth, gravity's real, fire's real, things are sharp, they can cut you and burn you. Uh, people don't treat you very well sometimes and, and life can be full of sex and full of violence. And sex and violence love also goes back to what we talked of as the creative forces of sex. But in that sex and violence stage, which begins when we're born, we're really unconscious of the creative forces of the power of the of sex as a creative force. We're still learning how to handle those things and work with them. Then we grow out of sex and violence love and we have the emergent phenomena of realizing that we need to establish conditions so that we don't have to go into the violence that right. we're trying to avoid. So sex and violence love becomes conditional love. I love you, Connor, if you do this and <laughs> you got to do this. I love you when you do that and I love you but you need to also consider this. And so there's conditional love and, and there's religious love, especially Abrahamic religion. God loves you as long as you don't touch your genitals, as long as you follow these commandments. And if you don't, you're going to burn in hell. And so there's the source of a lot of the heavy-handed uh, parenting right there because that's the program that people are indoctrinated in. But then we get mature enough and wise enough through the experience of life and we start ripening and aging like a good wine and we realize that empathetic and compassionate love is a natural thing because we've lived long enough to see the child before us, in us, to see the teenager, the addict, the violent person who can't manage a relationship. We go, ah, there I am when I was 20 or there I am when I was 17, there I am when I was 6, there I am when I was 4, there I am when I was 37, dot, dot, dot. And because we can actually remember how unconscious we were of what was moving through us and how we were reacting to it and uh, how we behaved in relationships. But now we can actually see it from higher on the mountain, so to speak, of the mm. spiritual climb. We can look at the rest of ourselves and say, there's the disgruntled child, there's the abused child of me, there's the addict of me, 
There's the sex fanatic of me. There's the money monger. There's the Donald Trump in me. There's the Madonna. There's the dot, dot, dot. And so then we really begin to realize that life is actually showing us at each stage who and what we really are. And the end stage is unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And only when we see empathy, of course, means to feel and compassion means to understand. So when we truly feel life and we understand life, then we have less and less limitation on embracing life. We, we become like, we start life like closed doors. And as life grows and we mature spiritually, the doors and the windows open until all of a sudden the barrier between what we thought of as ourself on the inside and what we perceived of life on the outside disappears. And all of a sudden we have samadhi moments or moksha mm. moments and we realize, oh my God. And we really do mean, oh my God, here I am. And we realize paradoxically that not only are we God, but so is everybody else and so is everything else. And this is why I love the first principle of Sufism. There is no God but God. I worship everything and everyone, which is an exemplification of the realization of unconditional love. But you can't get there by reading books and sitting in classes. You can only get there by engaging life and mm. seeking meaning in the experiences you have, even when it's hard to do. And that's why souls like you and I, and many others like Deepak Chopra and Eckhart Tolle and Gene Houston and uh, Houston Smith and a long, long list of people in my library, those souls are here to share their wisdom as guiding elders with us to help facilitate our awakening so that we don't do unnecessary damage to ourselves and the other beings that are here in that growth process with us. Yeah, so I want to say that that view of seeing the other and saying, oh, that's me, that's a spiritual path work right now that we all need to do. And I think we need to do it actually quite urgently. <laughs> yeah, because what, so compassion also, <laughs> compassion means to suffer with. So what's happening in the world right now is we're moving through uh, an evolution of consciousness, which actually is going to make that happen to all of us. So we're, and you can see it in the way that globalization and this current global crisis has linked us all together in each other's consciousness. And, and that's what the internet is And the internet is like a sigil for this in, mm -hmm. in some way, right? It's like a sigil for the Akashic Record. So what's happening is that we are slowly being transformed into beings that are aware of and can feel and encounter the suffering of every other being on the planet. So if you haven't done this work, this compassion path work, you're going to be moving into this new phase of humanity, experiencing this kind of acute global pain that you've done no training to be able to mediate or handle. And one of the ways people are trying to tamp that down or deal with that right now, and I see it even in very spiritually evolved, intelligent people, and it's very disconcerting, is they're trying to interpret the events that are going on in the world right now through knowledge and a certainty of knowledge and fact. Now, it is important to get yourself aligned with the best sorts of knowledge, the best forms of knowledge, but knowledge will not save us from what's coming. What's coming can only be contended with by taking an interest in the other, by meeting other human beings with love and compassion, even if they are absolutely opposed to the way you view things. Because soon, we're getting to this point where that person that 
just fucking hates everything you say and you hate everything they say and you try to dominate each other with abstract knowledge or theoretical sets, you're going to actually be able to feel that person's consciousness. That's going to start lighting up. And so you're going to feel the absolute pain of total (laughs) suffering and division. And the way to deal with that is to go through that training of, I am that. That's me. You're me. That body is my body. That person who's sitting on the street suffering because they're poor and they need money, that's me. My neighbor who hates that I put up the Trump sign or hates that I put up the Biden sign or what I mean, these dumb little arguments. That you're going to be inside that person's consciousness in a new way such that you cannot exist without feeling their suffering. So we Mm -hmm. need to do that work to be able to mediate those forces because it's coming. Yes, this is what uh, Jeremy Thomas outlines in his book, Seeing Through the World, which basically uh, highlights the stages of consciousness as outlined by Gene Gebser, and Mm -hmm. we're coming into integral consciousness. Mm -hmm. And in integral consciousness, he describes everything as translucent and time as not fixed like we think it is, but variable depending on the state of consciousness we're in. But basically, it's kind of like, um, you know how you can use a uh, overhead projector and, or uh, what are those things we used to scan for books in the library with microfish? Oh yeah, microfish, yeah. Yeah, so you have a film, right? Yeah. So right now, matter blocks it. But in the integral Mm -hmm. emergence that's coming, and this is why it's called seeing through the world, it's as though we're looking through layers and layers of of microfish or overhead projector sheets of plastic with different diagrams on. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in the worldview we're in now, I see Connor, but I don't see anything else. Mm -hmm. But in the integral view, I can see not only see Connor now, but I can see all the souls connected to him. I can see his heartfelt intentions. I can see his fears and he can see mine. And so what happens is when we come into this integral consciousness, consciousness state, we're actually given the opportunity to see the truth of the mind, to see how the emotions work, and to see more of what we really are, which all lends itself to a spiritual awareness because matter itself becomes less opaque and more uh, Mm. less um, fixed and more fluid. And we begin to realize that it is the powers of our mind that create solidity and illusion. And by learning that um, we have the power to create wholeness, to create connection, to create beauty, to embrace good and truth, and be more concerned about what is good for everybody, including the beings that support us, not just myself, which I wrote a note that I wanted to kind of get in before we finish here. One of the big problems I see that causes so much consumerism and materialism is because we've esteemed the willpower. You know, to be successful, you've got to have discipline. You've got to uh-huh. have willpower. <laughs> to be, you know, I've got many books by business experts who say, if you don't work at least 60 hours a week, you'll never make it. Uh-huh. You've got to really, you know, no pain, no gain. You've got to kick some ass out there. Dog eat dog. And so, you know, if you really want to be a good athlete, you've got to force through the pain. You know, if you want to give birth, you've got to force through the pain. And so what are all those? They're acts of willpower. But the problem is, is that we're actually willing ourselves into such a huge imbalance and state of disrespect with regard to the other forces of life on the planet that allow us to even exist, Mm. that I feel that we are now at a point where the next great frontier is what I call won't power. (laughs) Yeah. Right? We've gotten, willpower is the gas pedal, but we've forgotten that we have to learn how to use the brake because you inevitably crash if you have a gas pedal with no brake pedal. Uh 
And so we've just gas pedaled our way through the whole planet. You know, mm. we've robbed it of its resource. We sucked the oil out of it. We've depleted it. We now we're electrifying the shit out of it. And so mm. you see the merger into what we've been talking about as the essence of the relationship, the third person that we've talked about, the collection of the souls involved in the dialogue or the relationship, the seeing through the world, the getting to what's more meaningful than just the weighing and measuring of everything. I'm successful because I have this much money versus I'm successful because I'm in love with life and I can be happy if I'm broke and I can be happy if I'm rich. That's spiritual evolution. You know, and if you look at the core tenets of Taoism, it really can be boiled down to not too much and not too little. <laughs> so what do you got to do? You got to be acknowledged. You got you to say, okay, when is my body telling me that I need more brake pedal and less gas pedal on the cookies or less gas pedal on the soda pop or less gas pedal on the television mm. or gas pedal on the pornography or gas pedal on anything? But our whole culture is all gas pedal. It's fire. And so we have to invite, shall we say, the water element in, which is the feminine element. We have to be, mm -hmm. see, if we, if we spent more time connecting to our feelings and our authentic wants and needs, we would have less need to constantly try to fill something, stuff something in the hole that really is looking for connection as opposed to objects. Mm -hmm. So my, my point is that part of spiritual growth and development is having discipline. Like there's a lot of times somebody might say something to you and you want to just tell them to fuck off or punch them in the nose. But we know that that's not really a very high form of social evolution. And it's not a very high form of love. That's sex and violence love. So we create a condition. Um, Mr. Smith, I really don't feel capable of staying connected to you when you talk to me that way. So if you'd like to maintain the conversation so we can bring this to a resolution that hopefully works for both of us, I would really appreciate it if you would engage me as a human being, not as an object or as an, uh, you know, a, a punching bag. And there's a condition. And if that condition is applied, then you can actually have a chance to get to know the human being and have empathy for the person you just had to apply conditions for your own safety. And what are all those? Those are all acts of putting on the brake and say, I'm not going to punch him in the face. I'm not just going to tell him to fuck off. I'm actually going to embrace this person as though it was my six-year-old child having a temper tantrum. And I'm going to consciously be aware of the parts of myself that are triggered and want to contribute to bringing it down to this base level of two animals fighting. And therefore, true spiritual growth is as much about taking away or not doing as it is about having and and mm, doing mm, mm. yeah it's there there are two sides to that it's so well put so the first thing you're making me think of is so <laughs> if you've ever wanted a piece of chocolate cake right and you're like uh like oh i should be eating well but i want a piece of chocolate i want a piece of chocolate cake i want a piece of chocolate cake and then you're like you know what fuck it i'm gonna have the chocolate cake and mm -hmm. so then you eat the chocolate cake and as soon as you're done eating the chocolate cake you're like fuck why did i eat the chocolate cake right yeah. so because the reason that happens is because the same being so i'll call it an elemental being for whatever people can take that however they want but the same elemental being that's like uh, you want the cake, but don't eat it. You want the cake, but don't eat it. You want the cake. Okay, I'm going to have it. Then jumps over to the other side. It's the same thing in your being that's saying, oh, you shouldn't have eaten that, right? Yes. So the, one of the first things you can do, and this is something I learned from sex, is when you do something, just actually enjoy it. Like do it, actually do it and enjoy it and be present in it and love it. And that way, even if you've fucked up on the front end, like you've banished the being from the other side so it can't seize it and make it feel guilty, make you feel guilty. But then the 
so so once you do that, it clears the field to be able to strengthen you to do this kind of holding these tensions yes. and creating the third way. Yep. Because as long as you're just sort of battling with the, the temptation before and the guilt after, it's very hard. It you, just makes you want more. Well, and think about it interpersonally. It's like, oh, don't tell this person to fuck off. Don't tell this person to fuck off. You know what? I can't take this anymore. Fuck off. Oh, why did I tell that person to fuck off? Yes, right. Because now my nose is broken. <laughs> right. Right. At least enjoy telling or the I've person to fuck off. If you're going to do it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so then you create this, this third way. And I think that that's so important. And that's what I'm just saying is taking an interest in people. What we could do is in this time, I know it's so hard because right now we're facing the, um, the proximity of a, a presence that wants us to just say, Right or wrong. Computer says yes, computer says no. Computer says yes, computer says no. What is actually much more layered and multidimensional is taking an interest in the other person. And that is so different. It can't be reduced. It can't be reduced to yes or no. And the way to deal with that is to say right or wrong actually doesn't matter here um, as far as facts go. Right or wrong doesn't matter. What happens is I create a new pathway when I fall in love with this person in front of me, when I apply love, when I give love to this person in front of me. And by the way, when you really give love, it's energizing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't drain you. It actually gives back to you. Sure does. And when you find out that you're exhausted in a certain place because you've been holding that tension so much, that's okay. That doesn't mean that you didn't really offer love. It just means that there's parts of your being that need to be re-illuminated with love or recognize the love that you have, and then you can move forward. And the people that have the, that kind of reaction to giving love are usually people that don't give themselves enough love. Yes. Yeah. Because then giving love to somebody else creates a deficit and the child within you feels left alone. Mm -hmm. Like you just saw my two kids. If I give Zoe too much attention, then it winds Mana up and he wants to jump on me <laughs> and he wants to push his sister away. Uh -huh. And if I give Mana too much attention, she wants to push him away. Because they're little children, so they're I-centric. It's daddy, me, me, me. But, you know, the other thing is you talked about the chocolate cake and, and you know, instead of going into the beating yourself up over it, I say you can also go one step further. You can say, okay, I know that I don't do that well on chocolate cake, but it does nourish a part of me that really mm -hmm. enjoys it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to eat the chocolate cake and tomorrow when I feel shitty and got pimples or got gas or whatever, I'm not going to complain about the chocolate cake. I'm not going to blame it on the chocolate cake. And I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm going to say that was really fun and I take responsibility for what I created, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And then after the fifth, tenth, or hundredth time you eat the chocolate cake, <laughs> you can stand in front of the mirror and say, look what I'm creating. Mm -hmm. Is the chocolate cake contributing to what I want to use my creative powers to express as my own work of art called self? And if it's not, what can I use as a surrogate for the chocolate cake that gives me that same sense of connection and joy that the chocolate cake does, but doesn't have this negative effect on my body? Mm -hmm. For example, um, just to throw something out there, I don't do well with chocolate cake at all, but I can take some plantains and fry them in butter mm -hmm. and then add a little bit of uh, organic jam with no sugar added to it, like a, you know, lingonberry jam or something. And I can have a damn right orgasmic experience that takes me not only where the chocolate cake does, but sometimes even better. And then go, wow, now I get to wake up in the morning without puffy eyes, a foggy head, and the signs of inflammation throughout my body. 
And now that I know that I can get that joy in ways that is congruent with all the little beings that make my body up, then we have a harmony or a consensus of values. And I know that it's easier for me to put the brakes or the won't power on the chocolate cake because I can say, oh, every time I have the chocolate cake, I can just say to myself, is that creating what I want to create? Is that really part of my dream? Right. Or have I been good enough and I've stayed away from it long enough that I can eat the chocolate cake? and accept the repercussions, but not feel as though I'm um, aborting my own values. Because the judgment is part of the poison. It is. So, so yeah. that's, why you, that's why you decide. It's like, we need to let go of this field of judgment to the extent that we can. Because, it, it, again, like the thing I was saying about rape before, or whatever it is, that not to compare the two things, but the judgment and the value that we place on it, that actually is part of what we've put into ourselves. So that is actually part of the experience. So to the extent that we can walk away from that, we have something. And I, and I just want to say one more thing. Something that sometimes I think people hear when uh, we talk about recognizing the other and recognizing there's God and everywhere and that we are connected and all that is a temptation to move towards uh, we're all one. And I want to just say, <laughs> if we actually know that, we don't have to move towards that. We can just accept it. Why am I saying that? Because I think people tend to hear some of the things that we're saying and move towards an attempt to obliterate the individuation, the individuality that we all have, which is actually very valuable and very beautiful. And that to the extent that we can grow our individuality through an understanding of the connectivity and the mm -hmm. all oneness, we gain something else that we wouldn't gain if we just uh, got into that. We are all one. Let's just, we're just all one. We're just all one. And that's something I hear again and again and again on you know, consciousness or self-help or new age or spiritual uh, podcasts, lectures, books, whatever. But the individual and individuation is really, really important. Um, and to the fact that we can live out our individuality in the most expressive and loving way that we can and live up to that potential, we create that potential for so many others and we create as close as we can create to something that's a new possibility for God. And wouldn't we want to do that? Yeah, and, and I think now is the time. And the other thing, too, is, is really this is the fundamental function of religion and its wholeness. The word religion comes from the root word religia, which means to link back, mm -hmm. which paradoxically means exactly what yoga does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> identical. And so the point I'm making is this comes from the days of horses and donkeys and wagons. So to link back means to hook your trailer up to your horse, right? <laughs> uh -huh. Now, prior to hooking up, you had a horse and a wagon, but the horse can't get anywhere with the wagon until it's linked back. So now just take horse and wagon and call it Connor and Paul, or me and mom, or me and my friend, or me and the guy that I don't like. To link back means to join together, and in the joining together, there is a union of parts. And in the union of individuality becomes the third, which is the wholeness mm -hmm. of the collective. And by being aware of the fact that, hey, as long as my donkey has this wagon attached to it, I can go shopping, I can bring things to market, I can bring stuff home, I can get firewood. Me and this donkey and this wagon are having a hell of an experience that we couldn't have as three individuals. Because I'm not as strong as the donkey, and I can't hold as much as the wagon, but they can't know where to go without me helping them. Mm -hmm. So 
if we just realize that everybody's donkin donkey, everybody's wagon and everybody's driver, but we all need each other, when we link back to each other and say, what is it that we can bring to the table that's a gift of our individuality that contributes to the diversity that makes the unity, then we're going to be where Gene Gebser says is integral consciousness. We are going to integrate with each other and integrate with the world and begin to see, you know, for as metaphor, our angelic potential to create beauty together, mm. both individually and collectively. And I think that's where, uh, I think we've called all these issues in the world forth from our unconscious so that we can bring our shadow up. And isn't it interesting right now that with psychedelics, is a boom in shadow work. Shadow work mm. is becoming very, very popular in most aspects of psychology and spirituality because really, what is it? It's getting the parts of us reconciled that are limiting us unconsciously by bringing them into the consciousness and saying, oh, is that really true? Do mm. I really need to ha carry that belief or that fear? And as we clear away the shadow limitations, we unlock all the potential that's trapped in those fears and inhibitions and insecurities and it liberates itself for creative potential and that's what i think a healthy love life does that's what i think a healthy um spiritual life does that's what i think spending time in nature does that's what i think any pursuit of love ultimately leads us toward towards is real religion yeah and i I mean, I don't really have too much to add to that because that's so beautifully said, except just to say, like, you know, we can do that with anything. Yes. So I think so many people are turning to psychedelics right now. They're a really useful in intervention for people's lives. There are a lot of people that are so confused by the heaviness and density of materialism that they need something to pop their astral body out into the astral realm or they need something to encounter live you know the presence of living beings that they can really sort of get from their perceptual field and everything but you can do it by just realizing you can't see your face you can do it by having a conversation with somebody that feels like a psychedelic substance you can do it by having sex you can do it by meditating it's just that a lot of those things are much harder now so you need an intervention in the same way that you need other kinds of medical interventions when things get too terrible and so i think that the, the rise of these medicines is just a testament to how bad things have gotten actually yeah. where people really need that help from the spiritual world to just come in and shock them the only reason why i'm saying that is not to scold people for using those substances i obviously have a lot of respect for people that do them in the correct way with a real spiritual understanding and guidance and leader and all that kind of stuff i just um I know how tricky materialism is and the spiritual beings, we don't even have to say their names, but the spiritual beings that are linked into materialism, and I know the way that can even seize those experiences. If evil can permeate I mean, I was in the Vatican not too long ago, and it was the most beautiful place. It was so beautiful, and I thought, evil has permeated so much that's here. Mm -hmm. If evil can permeate the most beautiful works of art in the world, it can permeate anything, yeah. right? So we just have to be careful, and I know I'm using the loaded word evil, but we have to be careful even in the medicines that we use that are revelatory to us. And so um, I think some people are doing it in this really beautiful, productive, lovely way. And then other people are doing it in a way that's not. Isn't so that just how everybody does everything? <laughs> and, and really, what true. does that boil down to? The evolution of souls and a stratification of souls on the planet. And some are in kindergarten, some are in third grade, some are in high school, and some no. are uh, in postgraduate training. No. And some are here to 
share their love at every level of that reality because they're here because they can embrace the world with their heart. And so, you know, as nasty of a word as evil is, people need to remember that if evil is here, it's because God created it or there is no God. Mm -hmm. And so we have to also remind ourselves that without evil, there's no free will. Mm -hmm. And without free will, it means nothing to love somebody. Yeah, was it Angela Celestius or I forget who it was that said, you know, uh, the, the, the angel is the same distance from God as Beelzebub. It's just that one has his back turned, right? So you could say it that way. They're both in the presence, right? But to, yeah. to turn, literally the word perversion means to turn away from, right? Yeah. So, so there's just the, it's the same distance, the same presence of God. It's just this slight, this slight difference. But then that, as that echoes down into the plains, it creates what appears to be a huge difference that we have to deal with. But yeah. yeah. You know, Aubrey Marcus asked me one time, <laughs> what, what do you think the devil is? And I said, I'll tell you, but you'll have to take responsibility for it. And he looked at me like, don't be cocky with me. <laughs> and he said, what is it? I said, the devil and evil are God's reflection. Mm -hmm. And I said, now go look in your rear view mirror and tell me what it says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Not only does it say things appear closer than they are, uh -huh. but everything in a rear view mirror is inverted. You're looking at someone, but their right is their left. Evil is really just the mere image of love. And because God has nothing to look into but itself, God sees its own reflection. And if God falls in love with God's power or God's passions or, uh, you know, anything that leads to an addiction or to uh, hoarding or to trying to control things, that, that would be uh, sort of the God falling in love with his reflection, like Narcissus falling in love with his reflection. And, and as I said, God makes the video game and has to false, fall prey to the forces of God's own intelligence to get out of it. And I think the only way out is ultimately to realize that there is no greater medicine than love and the only way you can really receive the medicine is to learn how to love yourself because if you can't love yourself you'll never let anyone else love you more than you can you'll ultimately reject it because it'll make you scared or get you addicted to them and it'll always lead to problem for both people <laughs> and you're right back to where you started so what an amazing journey connor so much fun <laughs> man you have to come all the way over here from ireland more often <laughs> I've, I've had a really great time talking with you. I mean, I want to talk with you more and more. We're late in the day, but we'll we'll definitely talk more. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to it. a great time on your podcast, and thank you for sharing on mine. Where can people find more about you and your work? And I wanted to ask you the question exactly for the listeners: What does a sex worker offer or do? Oh, because <laughs> that could be anyone yeah. from a prostitute to a sex counselor. Uh, you know, what, so, what in your context is a sex worker? So a sex worker is somebody, I, I define sex worker as somebody who is using, <laughs> who's working with sex in a way that is actually over-regulated or over-persecuted by law. So the reason why I add that extra part is because I don't want porn directors to be considered sex workers. I don't want people that are just sex therapists to, to be considered sex workers. Sex work, the way I put it is, Sex workers bear the burden of a culture that refuses to work on its attitudes towards sex. Okay. <laughs> so, so although it, 
you're helping people deal with their own um, inner judgments of sex? Well, sex workers might have their own inner judgments of sex too. But yes, what I mean concretely there is escorts, um, street walking sex workers, uh, porn performers, cam boys, cam girls, that kind of stuff. I consider those sex workers. And why? Because not only are they working with sex, but they're also working with all the cultural regulations and pressures and oppressions and suppressions surrounding sex that end up regulating and interfering with their lives in one way or another. I mean, it's really interesting. You've had these guests on that have said these challenging things about viruses or pandemic or this or that. And everybody's now talking about, oh, well, they're, they're, taking that video off of YouTube and they're, you know, remove, and I'm, <laughs> or they, they kick this pundit off of, you know, Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And I'm just like, you guys realize like sex workers have actually dealt with that for decades. Yeah. Like there's an entire class of people. So of mystics for, for uh, eons. <laughs> yeah, right. But well, sex workers, <laughs> what I was saying, <laughs> mystics have for eons, but mystics mostly for eons didn't have to deal with not being able to use PayPal or payment processors right. or have their bank accounts closed down by the U.S. government because they were in porn or not being able to post a picture of their nipple on Facebook or all that kind of stuff. So sex workers represent an entire class of people that have been absolutely silenced for decades and nobody wants to take that seriously. And so then it's hard for me when someone's like, well, Alex Jones got kicked off of you know YouTube, not to badmouth Alex Jones, although I certainly have bad feelings about him sometimes, but it's just like, uh, but what about porn performers they've been kicked off for years and sex workers who have been arrested for giving getting paid for giving someone a blowjob raped by police and that's used as evidence against them in court brutalized by all kinds of laws in all kinds of places across the world so to me that represents a piece of the sex worker picture um where it's not just about doing something that relates to sex for your job but also inheriting the burdens that working with sex brings in right. the public sphere. Sounds like a quite a rich spiritual path to me. It really is. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. There's one that we can turn to yeah. pretty readily. <laughs> yeah. Well, Adam had Lilith and Eve. <laughs> or the Mary Magdalene is a very special figure, right? So, yeah. yeah, so we have a, or the Magdalene, you know, however we want to view her in popular culture as well. But so, yeah. So anyway. I don't really do sex work anymore. I mean, I did activism for sex workers for years after I stopped doing sex work myself. But it's something that I wish people would uh, support and not... <laughs> and one last thing. All sex workers, almost universally, do not want sex work legalized. They want it decriminalized. They don't want politicians making laws about sex work. Who could be the worst people in the world to create regulations around sex. Well, they're the ones that use it the most. <laughs> right. Yes, they use it the most, and they're the most suppressed and repressed people in the world. Like, they're not even allowed to talk about fucking in their, like, public lives without getting a scandal around them in the U.S. So sex workers want to decriminalize, which means that they can live without fear of being arrested. And that's the first step. And then eventually as you and I talked about uh, throughout this episode, what I would love is for the liberation of sex and sexuality and then the end of work as a, as a compulsory activity for people that says work or die. Then, then, you know, then sex work would probably go away because <laughs> our definitions of sex and work would be very different. Right. Fine. Yeah. Awesome. What a tour de France journey through uh, <laughs> all aspects of God, including God's most powerful force, sex. <laughs> and uh, where can people find out more about 
your services, your website, your podcast, and yeah. uh, any of the things you'd like to share. Yeah, thanks for asking. So my podcast is called Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Paul has been on. That was a great, mind-blowing episode. Um, I have people of all different backgrounds, war zone journalists, occultists, uh, authors, musicians. You know, um, Billy Bragg was on the show. Oh, I, I want to definitely yeah. <laughs> you can help me. Get okay, yeah, he's awesome. I read um, his book on freedom, I think it's yeah, called. Yeah, the three the three Free. dimensions of freedom yes yeah. it's yeah. a great great book um ian mckay the uh front person from fugazi lynn margulies who developed the gaia theory with james lovelock i have i had the last recorded inf- uh, conversation with her in her life and i posted that as an wow. episode so i it's it's a great show it's just about complex spiritual philosophical and political ideas but in a accessible way so against everyone with connor Habib, i have a patreon patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and that's what funds the show it's only funded by fans so um, and people that find the show valuable so uh, and then the only social media I really use is Twitter so at Connor Habib that's it right did you give your web address oh yeah well it's ConnorHabib.com but I that's mostly now I just draw the other things (laughs) onto that so I just post episodes of my show on that website now but yeah ConnorHabib.com is also a good hub for all of it so it's C-O-N-N-E-R-H-A-B I-B, right? You got it. C-O-N-N-E-R-H-A-B-I-B. Get deep with Connor Habib. Bye, bay. Hey, <laughs> been fun, man. Thank you so much for coming and sharing a day with me. Yeah. I hope you guys all enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. There's lots and lots and lots to really meditate on. And, and the more triggered that you got with our conversation, <laughs> the more important it is for you to look right there, darling. That's where the itch is at. And that's where the burr is at. So that's the doorway into your healing. That's what I've learned to do when someone winds me up saying, hmm, what's the <laughs> gift they're giving me here? And uh, thank you to all our sponsors. If you buy anything from the sponsors, you're not only supporting the planet because they're all coming from companies that are very holistic, organic, and earth-friendly, but you're supporting the podcast. So thank you. Lots of love, and I look forward to sharing something exciting with you all really soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Connor Habib. Please don't forget to go to checkinstitute.com forward slash survey to take our survey and be entered into the drawing to win a bundle of our sponsor products and to help support the podcast. The survey began with the release of last week's podcast and ends on the 10th of January. So if you didn't fill it out last week, there's still time to win. You can connect with Connor on Twitter at Connor Habib or visit him online at patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, where you can join his membership group with a monthly subscription at various levels and with different benefits. Check out his podcast, Against Everyone with Connor Habib, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's new media site, chakiva.com. Music